It was Wednesday, September 17th, 1986. I had just gotten home from school, and I was eagerly waiting for the third installment of the five-part G.I. Joe saga, Arise, Serpentor, Arise. Let me finish. Let me get there. Even though the cartoon aired after school, my older brother still had programmed the VCR to record the episode, like every episode before that, onto a VHS tape full of G.I. Joe cartoons. And young me, then not quite five years old, sat in the living room ready to find out what happened to Beachhead and Mainframe, who were trapped in Dracula's castle as it collapsed after a firefight with an Australian biker gang called the Dreadnoughts. God damn, I loved G.I. Joe back then. As the seconds ticked by to the start of that Wednesday's episode, I heard Neil shout from the kitchen, Jump is on MTV. I knew what that meant, and in an instant I forgot all about the Joes and switched channels. Sure enough, there was a video that I had already seen before that, but had to see again. Jump by Van Halen, the first single from their sixth album, 1984, and their most successful song, so much so that it was still in fairly regular rotation on MTV three years after its release. I loved the song back then, the dizzying synths and guitars driving a current through my legs like an electrical stimulation. I could never sit down when I heard that song. I felt compelled to do exactly what David Lee Roth told me to do. I get up, and nothing gets me down. ended, I realized that I had now missed the first three minutes of Arise, Serpentor, Arise, Part 3, but I had been taping it, right? Oh no, I screwed up. I changed the channel on the VCR, not the TV, so it recorded half of Jump before switching back to the G.I. Joe cartoon. By then, Beachhead and Mainframe were safe, but I had no idea how they had survived the collapsing castle. And how was Sergeant Slaughter fighting Dr. Mindbetter at Sun Tzu's tomb already? What had I missed? I would go back and watch that VHS tape regularly throughout my childhood. G.I. Joe as a toy line and cartoon and comic book was, even more than Star Wars, and before I really got into superheroes, the organizing principle of my entire life for a big chunk of the 1980s. It was a long time before I saw that episode in rerun and filled in the gaps that I had missed, but whenever I watched the tape, it featured this bizarre but not at all unwanted interlude right in the middle for Van Halen. And the fact that I still remember this, that it was in fact the first memory that came to mind when I heard that Eddie Van Halen had passed away on October 6th, 2020, should make clear that while recording the video for Jump Over My After School cartoon was an accident, it was by no means an error. It was an audiovisual touchstone documenting the band's iconic place in my youth. Van Halen was primordial for me. They were always there, since I could hear music and distinguish one song from another. The first time I uttered the words, my favorite song is, was in reference to Van Halen. They were the first band whose members I could name by sight and by instrument. They were sort of the first band that I saw in concert, in as much as we had a different VHS tape on which we'd recorded Van Halen live without a net. They were... They were my first. 
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a jam-packed, cradle-rocking episode of Fire & Water Records, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and when we started Fire & Water Records last year, I knew we would get to Van Halen. I didn't realize it would be in remembrance of the late, great Eddie Van Halen. But in a way, I'm glad, because his passing galvanized fans and made it possible for me to bring in four special guests for this tribute. First up, making his return to the network after our discussion of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, please welcome the unchained Chris Zagunas. What's up, Chris? Happy to be back. And I got to be honest with you, after the intro at this point, I kind of want to talk about G.I. Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Stick around after. (laughs) Fair enough. Next, the host of Pop Culture Affidavit on the Two True Freaks Network, please welcome Tom Panama Panarese. Hey, Tom. Hey, how's it going? Um, I'd like to give a shout out to our uh, birthday boy host, Jeff Spicoli, who has hired <laughs> Van Halen to play this party. It's pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. It's good to, good to be here. Next up, he is not here to talk about the law and he ain't talking about love either. Welcome, Omar Yudin. What's going on, Omar? Hey, Ryan. Hey, everybody. Happy to be here. Good. And finally, that voice from the kitchen who started this whole thing by telling me Jump was on MTV the guy who introduced me to Van Halen, not just the music, but the people who made me think about the actual look of a guitar, my semi-permanent co-host and my brother, Neil Daly. What's up, bro? Hey, man. How's it going, bud? Good to be back. Good to be doing this. And I'm glad we've got some more people to uh, spread the wealth. Yeah. Uh, We are here not just to honor the passing of Eddie Van Halen, who belongs in any conversation about the world's greatest rock and roll guitar players ever. Um, but really to pay tribute to the whole band, its history and legacy, and we will get to our favorite albums and songs. But before that, how and when did you guys become Van Halen fans? Neil, we'll start with you. Uh, take us through it. I, obviously, I'd, I'd heard Van Halen. I've heard them you know, through friends I, throughout the early 80s. I know friends had like records at the time and stuff, and I remember people having them. I know for a fact I was at somebody's house, and they were playing Diver Down. Um, I, I, I know I had the cassette tape of 1984 because I remember playing it in our my room, which then became your room. I remember just you know trying to hide it from mom because there was a kid smoking a cigarette on the cover. But it didn't I, honestly. It didn't really click and and become a thing for me until the release of Fifty One Fifty. And I remember specifically that 1986 MTV hyped the shit out of it. It was all over the place. Uh, They did multiple specials. They did a lost weekend thing with some fan that got to win a a weekend with Van Halen. They did uh, uh, a a little, like a little rockumentary called Unleashed. And I watched that stuff. And then I fell, that that was when I really fell in love with the band. That was when I got to know them as individuals, as people. I knew all the four people in the band. And that was kind of a, you know, that was a big deal. And it, also kind of coincided with my first rock band i don't know how much you remember this ryan but i was i god i couldn't even play the guitar yet i don't know what the hell i was doing in a band but me and a bunch of kids um had a rock band called zero population growth zpg and (laughs) and and i just i I remember that was you know i talked because i was officially in a band that was how i talked dad into letting me buy a guitar then finally getting my own electric guitar and i went to guitar center in chicago and got an 84 kramer beretta special just like eddie's at the time which was what he was playing at the time and i think we played i I, from what i remember i we learned 
like the easy songs that they could do. Like I did learn Ain't Talking About Love. I did learn It Really Got Me. And I think we might have played Everybody Wants Some and everything except the solos. I was like none of us were any good at the time. But that was uh that was that was it. And then from that moment, then I went back retroactively and got every single album. I got the cassettes of all uh, of all their albums and was a fan ever since. I was yeah, I was going to ask how much uh, Eddie influenced you as a as a young musician at that time. I'll, I'll, I'll have plenty to add to that conversation. I want to hear other people's background stories first, but yeah, Eddie Van Halen was probably. I mean, I mean that was to be honest. In in, in, in the shortest answer I can give is he was the first guy that made me like want to like not. I don't know if all kids kind of feel the same way, but usually when you're like, you lip sync the singer's parts, you know, when you're looking in the mirror as a kid and you're pretending you're a rock star, you're doing the singer. That's mm-hmm. what just about everybody did. I grabbed dad's tennis racket and I was air guitaring. And that was all, <laughs> that was, that was specifically a Van Halen thing. That was, that was the first time I remember just being like, I wanted to be the guitar player, not the lead singer. Chris, how and when did you discover them? Well, I was a big fan of Zero Population Growth uh, back in the day. <laughs> and, of course, discovered Van Halen through their Pitch Perfect covers of their songs. <laughs> no, actually, um, I mean, you know, I came to Van Halen probably like uh, most teenagers did in the 80s. And that was with 1984 and with, you know, the advent of uh, MTV kind of coinciding with the release of that album and those three huge videos that were on that from that album, you know, Jump, Panama, and Hot for Teacher. I just remember them just being ubiquitous on MTV and just kind of in the pop culture ether at the time. And I, you know, like going back to your intro, Ryan, I, I feel the same way about Jump. And I actually watched that video, went back and watched it again recently. And that video probably cost $18 to make. <laughs> and yet, directed by David Lee Roth, by the way. Yeah, and it's just an amazing video. Uh, there's just some kind of weird energy about it that just captures Van Halen, and you really understand why they blew up as big as they did at that moment. But yeah, I had you know I had the cassette because you know I think they were issuing that cassette to anybody uh, that you know lived in in the United States at that time. And everybody everybody had it. I had it. Listened to all the songs. But it was a weird thing because I didn't really go back and listen to the older stuff until years and years later because obviously this was their last album with David Lee Roth. And I, you know, we'll probably get into this later in the podcast, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hardcore team Roth or team Lee Roth. I'm not sure which is the correct version. <laughs> so when David Lee Roth subsequently left the band and, and excuse me, Sammy Hagar joined, I lost interest in the band. And it wasn't actually until like within the last few years of like from today that I've actually come to respect that version of the band a lot more than I ever did. I never really gave them a chance. So it wasn't until years later that I came around and started, you know, getting into the older stuff and uh, which, you know, is that those first three or four albums are, you know, my favorite of Van Halen. And, they, uh, you know, and I've just loved them ever since. When we first started, you know, this was kind of in the, this podcast was sort of in its gestation right after we found out that Eddie Van Halen had died and we were just kind of talking about it and sharing stories. You, you shared a tweet that I loved and I don't, I, I can't credit who actually said this, but somebody posted, you know, Every single song Van Halen did sounds like a dog wearing sunglasses. Yes. <laughs> and I just and it's driving like, a Camaro. Yeah. It's <laughs> just, and it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, the, the visual of everything that represents it's just like, yes, yep. that, is, that is how you distill that music that, <laughs> yeah. from, from like 1978 to 1988 or whatever, like right in that middle period. Like, yeah. Yep. 
Yep. Uh, Omar, how and when did you discover Van Halen? Yeah, uh, Team Gary Sharon right here. Um, <laughs> no, I am lucky enough, uh, like you, Ryan, to be a lot younger than uh, Chris and Neil. So my origin story um, starts a little bit later. Uh, get in the Wayback Machine with me, won't you, to the summer of 1993. I am... At home, because I'm, I'm in that weird stage where I'm just like, I'm, I'm not quite old enough to have a job. I think I'm like 11 or 12, and I'm not really ambitious enough to hang out uh, outside all, all day or, or socialize. And so I'm watching like things like Beavis and Butthead and 90210, and we start to get inundated with the Crystal Pepsi app. And <laughs> like the, the product itself was a fun little novelty, but the soundtrack... Uh, blew my mind and it was Van Halen's right now and there was something enormously epic sounding about it and it was like a classic type of song to like get you super pumped up Um, and after you know listening to or watching the ads dozens and dozens of times I was you know sort of gripped with the fever like I had to get this song and so I badgered my parents into like taking me to I think it was the Oak Brook Mall in suburban Chicago um and I got the Four Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album, uh, and it was not very good. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> the, the the song was amazing. It continues to be amazing, even though as time has gone on, I find it to be like incredibly inexplicable. Um, a very deep and profound song about nothing, um, and that was my entry point. And so, like, I worked backwards from that point because. I got the other Van Hagar albums and, you know, I was young enough and they were produced and written cleanly enough that I was just like, oh, there's really something to this. And and to be fair, like, I still enjoy those records for what they are. I guess I would classify them as a guilty pleasure. Um, Although I think 5150 is on its own merits, like very good. And they were, they contain the classic kind of singles that like when you're a teenager, like you put on a mixtape for a girl you were trying to impress uh, and stuff like that. But it wasn't until I went backwards and I got to the David Lee Roth catalog that I recognized them as sort of special and asymmetric as opposed to being just like a a neat sounding, you know, uh, Michael Bolton type band. Um, There was something like very different. There was something very cutting edge. Um, And the older I got, the more I appreciated the craftsmanship of the David Lee Roth era, even though it was always sort of like on the edge. I think those stand the test of time. I think they're exceptional. Van Halen for the longest time was my concert white whale. Um, Cause I just given the increasing levels of dysfunction within the band uh, as the nineties and aughts wore on, I just did not think it was going to be in the cards for me to see them. So when they reunited with David Lee Roth in 07, I went to see them the next year and it was like one of the, all time uh, concerts I've ever been to. And, you know, the last thing I'd say in terms of like my getting to know the band and getting familiar with them was, you know, right around the time, early mid nineties that I was just sort of, you know, uh, sinking deeper and deeper into fandom. That, that also unfortunately coincided with the period when Van Halen transformed from being about the music and about the craftsmanship and about like Eddie's very like unicorn like abilities. And that they just sort of devolved into soap opera and I have to admit that, like, you know, more often than not in the inner, you know, in the in the last like 20, 25 years, me checking in with the band was more about finding out what was going on uh, in terms of rumors, in terms of who was pissed off and who in terms of who was out and who was in than anything else. And, you know, aside from in, in reflecting on it recently, 
Um, and we can, we'll get into the music, the music later. And I think it stands a test of time. It's towering. It's good, especially the David Lee Roth era. I do think that what's kind of notable about it is, you know, in the last like 30 years, other than maybe Guns N' Roses, I can't think of a, of a group of a rock band that was alternately so full of promise and so full of raw talent, but also, you know, just, just couldn't disassemble that from the soap opera element of their, their narrative. And so it became about the breakup and it became about the rumors almost as much, if not as much of the, as the music. And I think that's a real shame because I think it obscures a pretty rich and great musical legacy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Neil, Motley Crue, Poison, do any of those bands hold a candle in terms of what Omar was talking about? I'm sorry. I didn't listen to a thing Omar said because he started his conversation with he's lucky to be younger than Chris and I. So I'm, I, I tuned out. <laughs> no, he's, he's absolutely right. And I'm, I, Omar, I'm actually glad you brought up the Guns N' Roses thing because I was going to mention this at some point during this podcast. I don't know if there's ever been a rock band, not, an art, not a single artist, but a rock band that had such an impactful debut album. Guns N' Roses comes to mind and Van Halen sure. won. Like those just, when you, like those are Hall of Fame albums by themselves. They could have mm-hmm. never done another thing. Yep. Yeah, we'll get we'll get back to that. Um, Tom, how and when did you discover him? Kind of on a similar track as Omar, but uh, you know, I, I'm also much younger. And uh, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Van Van Halen, but the thing is, I have older. It's going to devolve old. into the sharks and the jets. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> I have is that a snap. Did yeah, I just hear you? That's snapping? me attempting. I was, I was, I was I, doing a snap. Yeah, okay, yeah, so okay. I don't have an older sibling, but I have a lot of older cousins. So the the music of the '80s, as it was at least the first half of the '80s, was there. It was always there. And Van Halen was one of those groups that was mentioned. And I th- I'm 99 percent sure the first song I heard was "Jump." Um, and I don't think I saw the video for a number of of years until one of my friends finally got MTV because my cheap ass father didn't pay for cable until 1996 but that aside so i i I kind of knew who they were at the end of the roth era and i didn't start getting into like heavily into music until the very early 90s like 91 92 and i remember distinctly remember uh the first van halen album i owned was for unlawful carnal knowledge and uh probably spurred by the fact that at one point i want to say it was 92 293 they played the uh or might have been earlier they played the mtv vmas and played pound cake and i think it was I, 92 yeah and, and it was it, that was back when they used to rebroadcast it on fox because i could actually watch it and uh and i had remembered sammy hagar from of all things the over the top soundtrack um <laughs> yes and, and i had when it takes it all so but i had seen and i had seen the video for for uh dreams because, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, being at friends' houses, anytime that video came on, having watched Top Gun endlessly in my lifetime, it was like we all stopped and, and watched <laughs> the Van Halen video with the Blue Angels. But I got I got foreign lawful common knowledge, and that had me go back through um, – I got ended up getting uh, in some form or format, all of the Van Hagar albums. And then gradually went on my way back to where I had 1984 and then, um, you know, a smattering of things on mixtapes from earlier albums and spent, on and off the last couple, uh, you know, few days to a week or two, listening to stuff on Spotify and just rotating it. But yeah, it what was interesting to me was that I always associated with, and this isn't an insult to any of you guys, I always associated with guys and girls in, in classes that were slightly older than me. Cause like my friend, my best friend's older brother was a huge Van Halen fan. And, you know, so, so it was almost like, you know, liking them and listening to them was just something that 
I always knew what I was going to do. And, and I really, I, I genuinely enjoyed listening to them, but it was always also almost like I was um, allowed into the, the club of, of liking something that somebody older and cooler than me uh, was doing. Um, and like, you know, my, my cousin Kelly, who was a lot cooler than me, I went to see them a few times and it was just, you know, so it was this almost like this, this window into larger world for, for all the years up until I, I finally bought one of their albums. And um, I, I distinctly do remember that right now video and everybody going crazy over it when we were, I think I was a freshman in high school and then um, buying balance and the twister soundtrack and then kind of falling off after a while there, because I went down dark roads into ska um, <laughs> and, and other things. And it took, and it took my, my wife to pull me back out of that, out of the, out of a really, really <laughs> bad pit, but, but yeah, no, no, in all seriousness, no, I, I spent a rough weekend with real big fish too. I, I mean, oh I, we, we talk about an album that everybody ended up with at one point or <laughs> it's got passed around like currency. Um, but yeah, your, your point about your point about a band that has had drama. I was trying to think of it while you're talking about it, Omar. It was, I, I, the only band I can think of post eighties would maybe be Oasis because of the constant feuding between the brothers, the brothers. And I know that um, some other bands have had their drama, but and I honestly can't think of very many album debut albums in rock after guns and roses that set everything aflame because nevermind was a second album. And I'm like, beyond that, I mean, granted, was 10, was 10 the debut album? 10 was a debut yeah. album. So yeah. maybe, maybe that that's a good comparison. And um, maybe live through this because it's, it's such a, but then again, Courtney Love herself, you want to talk about drama, you know, whole being one of those groups that, that gets a lot of recognition for that. But I don't know if they were in the stratosphere on the level that, you know, what we're talking about here. You know, and I know we'll get into like his guitar, his reputation as a guitarist and everything later. So I'll let you, I'll, I'll, I'll hand the mic back to you, Brian. Yeah. Um, love the stories and, and kind of Neil getting back to one of the things that you were saying, you learned to imitate, you know, the guitarist instead of, yeah. instead of the singer. And yeah. I remember, you know, air guitaring with, with uh, the tennis racket. And I started mm-hmm. doing that too, to, to ape you and mimic you. And I remember through your exposure, I mean, you schooled me on the band and everything and taught me these things. And, and this was sort of how I started to learn about the, the components of a of a rock band and things like that. Like I assumed <laughs> if it's named Van Halen, I was like, that's that's the singer, right? Like I pointed to a video, I pointed to David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar on like the TV or something. I was like, that's Van Halen. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's what's the name? Van Halen is the name of the guitarist. And also <laughs> yeah. and also his brother I, who's a drummer. And I, and no, I, like, I remember I remember that conversation because you you were trying to make the analogy with Bon Jovi. And you yeah. were like, I, I remember I remember you were saying like, wait, how wait, Van Halen's not the same. Actually I think you thought they were all Van Halens. Well, yeah. Well, you- once once you said like the drummer was Van Halen, too, I was like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a whole family thing. And you're like, no, only half of them. <laughs> and I was so, and I think the way it occurred to me, I was like, wait, they named the band after some of the guys, but not the front man, not like for all intents and purposes, the face of the band. I was like, you can do that. And then later on, like I, I watched the video, like the live concert with Sammy Hagar running around and everything. I was just like, he looks different. His hair is all curly and stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, this is, a, this is a different guy. They fired the other singer. And again, my same question. I was like, you can do that? I was like, so all these things just kind of getting to the, and I was like, okay. I was like, Eddie is the guitarist and the keyboardist. Alex is his brother and the drummer. And Michael Anthony is the bass player. And I knew these guys and I could recognize them. And it just, that, that sort of, and, and to this day, I mean, 
I don't know the names of the heartbreakers in Tom Petty's band, like other than maybe, like maybe one and everything like that. I, you know, it's one of those things, like just maybe it's just because it was a small enough, it was always a quartet, even though they had a revolving door of different singers. And then most recently on their, their final album, when David Lee Roth came back, Eddie's son came in. So that at that point, there were three Van Halens in the band when they, when they kicked um, Michael Anthony out. Hey, speaking of which, can I just jump in real quick? You know, what's really depressing. Hmm. I just checked out the Wikipedia page the other day while I was boning up on some research and they've already updated the current members of the band to include not Eddie. So the hmm. under Wikipedia, it says current members of the band, Alex Wolfgame and David Lee Roth. That's what it says. Hmm. Yeah. Ryan, on what you were saying real quick, could I just ask like for all of, all of you guys, if we were going to make a short list of, you know, just like we were making a short list of bands that like, you know, got eclipsed by drama or had to deal with a lot of drama or bands that had a massive debut album. I guess what I would ask is to Ryan's point, there's a short, short list of bands where the lead guitarist is either equally as famous or more famous than the lead singer. And I'm thinking like the Who, I'm thinking Led Zeppelin, maybe the Rolling Stones, maybe Oasis, like Santana. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay. Just, just, just I, I, I mean, the, 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 the first one I thought of again was, the, was Guns N' Roses again. Like yeah. when you, like before you even finished the question, that was the first thing I thought of. It, sure. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's the bass player. That's the second baseman of, of, of rock <laughs> bands. Like you gotta like, you know, how many can you name? So, <laughs> but no, you're right. The, the guitarist, it's it, there, there aren't that as many that are like going to totally overshadow the, uh, in like a Stillwater sort of fashion. The, uh, you know what, are you going, going back to it? Yeah. You know, since we're talking about the, the foursome kind of thing, Ryan, I think you're right. First of all, I, 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 I want to preface this for our listeners out there that aren't a part of this. We're probably like an anomaly. The fact that we are the people that kind of know everybody that's in the bands. Like that's, that's who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I am. I've always been that kind of guy. Whereas they're to the casual fans all around me. They couldn't tell you who's in Van Halen, even if they love the band. That's not something that people bother with. We, you know, I, I speaking for myself and for my brother, you know, that's, we've always been interested in that kind of stuff. Now, the other thing is the weird thing about it, like going back through like all the footage and all the, the history of the band live clips and interviews and stuff. Michael Anthony was a pretty damn good bass player. And we'll talk about this stuff later on as we go, but he brought something, you know, it's, there's, Ryan, we've talked about stuff like the Smashing Pumpkins, where Billy Corgan can kind of go out and tour with just about whoever he wants, and mm-hmm. it's it's going to sound roughly the same. Because he you plays know? every instrument on the album. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean, in some of the live videos from Van Halen in the 80s and even in the 90s, they had a 10-minute bass solo, mm-hmm. you know, like like in live shows. Like, everybody, the you know, Alex got a drum solo, Eddie got his guitar solo, and Michael Anthony got a bass solo. You just don't see that very often. I mean, these guys, every one of them, it's like a weird, in 19 1972 or three, whenever they were, whenever they first got together and started jamming, and then Roth came in 75, I think. These guys were honestly kind of like all absolutely perfect at their craft. It was the weirdest convergence of talent at the, at, at the strangest time in Pasadena, California. It's insane that what they all brought to the band can't be overlooked. mentioned they kicked the door down with their entry in their debut album van halen 1978 uh, a buddy of mine on twitter van allen plexico uh posted that he thought 
the first three tracks, Running with the Devil, Eruption, and You Really Got Me, like what he considers like some of like, he's like, he, he basically asks, he's like, can you name a better one, two, three punch out of the gate for a band? And I actually said, I was like, you know what? I wouldn't stop there because Ain't Talking About Love is track four. And when you put all four of those back to back as the opening quarter, and that's most of side A. I mean, like if you break it down like as original right. as I a remember final album, I mean, there was the first five songs, the first four of them are like hall of fame tracks that are on their greatest hits albums i mean so i yeah i mean i think yeah i mean what, what do you guys think i mean chris uh, your thoughts just on that that first album van halen and the songs there well i mean there's definitely an argument to be made it's their best album and it's mm-hmm. not my personal favorite but you know i always kind of differentiate between what you can acknowledge objectively as a superior piece of music or an album versus what your favorite songs or albums sure. are by right, right, right. Yeah, artists. I think we're all there yeah absolutely yeah yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And to, to the point you're making, I mean that, yeah, it's like half that album are like, you know, classic FM staples. I mean, they're just like, you, you know, the first time you listen to it, you know, half the songs. And uh, yeah, that, that I would probably rank that as my, I mean, second, you know, second favorite album. And it's a close second, but I would make the argument, or at least I wouldn't argue against the argument that that is their best album. Yeah, it's 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 hard to for me to think of any band that debuted not only like with such a great album with but with such a streak of great songs on the first side of an album like that. I mean, you got to wait a couple albums before you get to like Born to Run, for instance. And so, so yeah, I'm just I'm just I, I'm I'm still in awe of of how phenomenal Van Halen as an album is, although I have to admit it's been a while since I've listened to the whole thing all the way through. And uh, this is where sometimes the band for me is just, it's it, sometimes the band for me is just kind of the individual songs that were, that were singles and, and picking that up. Although I think I've rarely listened to you really got me separate from eruption, unless it was just, I heard it on the radio or something, <laughs> but, um, but also, but that's another thing, like to take a, a song by the kinks that is, not an obscure. I mean, it's it was one of their signature songs, and make it even better in terms of a cover is, uh, you know, a in your debut album, um, take some balls, and uh, you know they had them and they they really pull it off. It's 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 a phenomenal cover. Yeah, they did a they did a lot of covers in their early stuff. Um, there that was one of two covers on the album. They also did Ice Cream Man, which was another cover. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, so much. I mean, like they, it, that, that song was used again for a car commercial. I remember when they did like almost like a Toy Story thing when they had a they had a Ken doll driving a like a like yeah, a toy, a toy like Barbie car or something set to that song. Yeah. Uh, Omar, what did you think of the first album? Yeah, I think it's actually a near perfect record. Um, I think it is sort of a masterclass in technical proficiency, but I also think it's like playful and there's something like loose and ramshackle about it, but it's also like technically kind of brilliant, which I think is sort of Eddie Van Halen's sweet spot. I think that beyond like the sort of murderer's row of singles that you just talked about that opened the album and yeah, ain't talking about love is, I mean, you can't leave that off. I think eruption is just like, a really good thesis statement for like Eddie Van Halen's technical proficiency and genius. Um, it also moves along at a really clipped pace. There's not like an ounce of fat on that record at all. I think that Neil is right that like if they had done nothing beyond that album, I think their place in sort of like the pantheon of like that, you know, metal pop spot would be sort of guaranteed. 
So I, I, you know, I go back and forth between that and 1984 as to whether that's my favorite Van Halen album, but I think it's the correct choice for the best Van Halen album. Everybody's kind of touched on most of the stuff, so I'm not going to add a whole lot. But there's a couple of things. The, I, I, I'm going to answer a lot of these questions tonight by separating the musician part of me views albums a certain way, and then the fan, the fanboy, views them a different way. So uh, first, first and foremost, uh, this album, you know, as I've gotten older and listened to it more, the cool thing about this album is, you know, Omar said there's not an ounce of fat on it. This was really cool because... For a long time, I thought like, oh, man, I missed the I missed the 80s and the 70s and 80s when you could put a nine song album out, a 10 song album out. I could play 30 minutes and that was all you did. And I kind of assumed because we've been spoiled by the bands of the 90s that would release 15, 16, 17 song albums. And I always kind of assumed that these people back then just didn't write that much. I was like, oh, you know, OK, that's and the, the uh, apparently this isn't true. Like Gene Simmons recorded demos of Van Halen before they got signed to Warner Brothers and they he recorded 40 songs and most of those songs did end up on subsequent albums but somebody had the wherewithal to kind of like say no let's let's just release these this is a good enough album let's not add other material that we don't need and that's brilliant that's just absolutely brilliant there's you know yeah what omar said was right about that um and i'm always going to have the, the guitar player in me is always going to have a really, I mean, here's two things. Number one, in, in 1978, I looked at what, what, what else was out at the time. I looked at some of the charts when I was researching. There was nothing like this. This was our, I mean, their 80s sound was, uh, was almost cemented before the 70s ended. They were so far ahead of anything that was out there. I listened to what modern rock bands were playing in, 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 in the late 70s. Well, there, first of all, there weren't a whole lot of modern rock, rock bands or hard rock bands or whatever but this sound was absolutely one of a kind unique and i'll talk a lot more as we go about eddie being a tone chaser and him finding that guitar sound and never you know always kind of constructing his own sound we'll get into that stuff later on but it's just absolutely brilliant that he they came out with something so original so amazing and jaw-dropping and I like this album a lot because at this particular time in Eddie's life, he held his guitar lower on his waist than normal. He had a longer strap, which I always appreciated. The older he got, the more he lifted it up and started playing like Dave Matthews. And <laughs> that always bothered me. <laughs> uh, I, I co-signed the, the idea that this is probably technically their best album. I mean, just like like one of the songs that I love that we didn't even mention was Jamie's crying. I mean, just yeah, in yeah. terms of just the percentage of great music on this album for only a handful, nine or 10 songs and everything. Yeah. It's only half an hour or something. It's yeah. I, I think it's incredible. When I went to college, I only took two Van Halen albums with me and this was one of them. Can I tell you something that's going to blow your mind, Ryan though? Hmm. Believe it or not. And this is going to shock all of you. I don't like running with the devil. I've never liked that song. I like the rest of the album. I think it's a good song. I wouldn't have opened the album with it. That's insane. I've I've actually known that about you, Neil, and it's 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 been a real wedge in our relationship, man. It's I know, I know. This 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 caused a falling out, much like Van Halen and Roth. Exactly. I like the song. I I think maybe <laughs> talking about love would have been a better opener. I actually did want to just before we get off this one though, thinking about eruption and and 
I think Omar mentioned it as sort of like a thesis or a statement about the album and about Eddie's talent to have that be the second track to have your opening song and then go right to a 90 second guitar solo and mm-hmm. then another kick-ass song like balls and just the, just like this, this uber confidence that these guys came in just knowing what the hell they were doing. Well, credit producer Ted Templeman for that choice, because if, if memory serves from history, he stepped out for a cigarette during the recording sessions of that album, and Eddie was fucking around in the studio playing that piece of music. And Ted Templeman came in and said, what the hell is that? And Eddie <laughs> said, oh, I'm just, I was, I've always been fascinated by trying to, trying to transpose classical piano pieces to the guitar. And Ted's like, Don Landy, roll, roll tape and, and record it and record it. And now the placement of it on the album, you know, I don't know how the hell that they decided, like you said, Ryan, that's shocking that that a guitar solo became second on the album. But the fascination I have with just the fact that that was an accident, like Eddie was just screwing around. That's just brilliant to me. <laughs> like there, there is something, this is a very obvious point, but like there is something very beautiful and amazing about like a phenomenally talented musician that like hasn't quite realized it yet uh and it's still just kind of futzing around like a cartoon character running off a cliff and they keep going as long as they don't look down mentioned how how much they were recording and and like uh, or how much songwriting they were actually getting done that might not have made the album their first six albums like the david lee roth era those six albums came out over seven years yeah, so yeah. you think about like i mean they, they were constantly doing um let's kind of jump ahead and i'm gonna lump the next four together we had van halen two uh in 1979 women and children first 1980 fair warning in 81 and diver down in 82 uh chris <laughs> what what did you think of fair warning i know what your answer is but <laughs> well yeah fair warning is my favorite van halen album and you know preparing for this podcast i ran through their discography and listened to everything again and it's by no means a perfect album and there are probably some songs on there that i'm like eh, i'm not sure that song quite works for me but there's this i don't know what it is about that album i mean first of all the opening track is one of their best i mean main street i just love yes. and uh as far as like their better known songs um unchained is definitely one of my favorites mm-hmm. and there's just something maybe it's just there's a certain darkness to the album i think and like the especially the opening track and the lyrical contents and you know, and you get in dirty movies, and it's song too. Yeah, I mean, and you know, center swing. I don't know. I, it, it's 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 hard to put my finger on it, but yeah, I mean, I I love that album, and it stands as my favorite. Uh, guys, any other thoughts on the other albums around there? 
a lot of thoughts on you. Is this, is, is this, is this where I relate Chuck Klosterman's hipster thing about and the cradle will rock and how Van Halen is the most rated band of all time that I showed you the other day from, from an old spin magazine or share that one, share that one. Like yeah. Okay. So, so um, it's just, I, it's, it's collected in his book, Chuck Klosterman four, and it was written in spin back in, I don't know when somewhere in the mid two thousands. And he, he rated, he did a top 10 list of the most rated, not underrated over, but the most rated bands in history. And Van Halen was at number one. And so this is him, not me. So this band should have been the biggest arena act of the early eighties. And they were, they had the greatest guitar player of the eighties and everyone except possibly Yangwe Malmsteen seems to agree on this point. They switched singers became semi crappy except for the middle four songs on 5150 and the booze classic Cabo Wabo. And nobody aggressively disputes that reality. They also recorded the most average song in rock history and the cradle will rock. What this means is that any song better than in the cradle will rock is good. And any song worse than the cradle and the cradle will rock is bad. If we were to rank every rock song in sequential order from best to worst and the cradle will rock will be right in the fucking middle. And that's exactly what I want. Um, I, I do also have to mention that there are a lot of, yeah, so it's, 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 it's very perfect pitch for, for that writer. But uh, I always, I always think of it like what, what I, I thought of it when you were suggesting this episode of like, I have to share this with Ryan. Um, but the, the thing I was thinking of, and, and this is just, it's, a, it's another movie reference, but um, everybody wants some is the song that the claymation hamburger plays with the claymation Eddie Van Halen guitar in the movie, better off dead. Oh God. And I can't separate that song from that movie anymore, even though I've heard, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I just remember my because so, so my 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 I pick and choose stuff off of this this era. And when we get into the Hagar stuff, I have a lot more to say. But I also remember seeing that VH1 would play the video for Oh Pretty Women on pop up video like endlessly, mm. and uh, that looks like it was shot on a public access network somewhere in the early 1980s. <laughs> but it, it's even a pretty good cover. But yeah, so I'm so I'm going to stop adding nothing to this conversation and let you guys take over. For a <laughs> Can, can I can I go to bat for Van Halen too for a second? Yeah, um, please. I I know that we've we've lumped these next four after the debut in. I'm sure you know partially for time purposes, partially because in terms of like the narrative of the band, it makes sense. Like this, yeah, uh, we, big we didn't form. lump them. Ryan did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was being nice to him. I, I get it. Um, but uh, I think Van Halen Two needs to be like accentuated as a, an excellent album as well, and I think that you know it largely avoids. A lot of the sophomore slumps that, you know, that have happened, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, uh, GNR lies and stuff like not even slumps, but just underwhelming sophomore efforts. Um, I think Van Halen, too, is like a really good demonstration of their versatility as songwriters and a really good demonstration of um, just the like Eddie's, again, loosey goosey slash technical brilliance. I think that they, they showcase their main guy's strengths really really well like i think of a song i think of like bottoms up as like the ultimate like you know sort of like party rock song it, it just kind of bears into focus this reality of eddie van halen as someone who is classically trained and like colors within the lines in terms of like his his understanding of like how to how to write music even though he doesn't really know how to read music which is very funny but he is he's directing those talents toward writing songs that, you know, we would play while like tailgating for a football game or something. You know, um, it's it's a weird dichotomy, but it's still great. Um, you know, like light up the sky. Like it's just like incredibly electric um, that, that the instrumental. What is it like? Uh, 
the Spanish fly with him like finger picking on this like nylon string guitar. Yeah, no, I, I think Van Halen 2 is exceptional. I think it has one of my favorite, I think it's my favorite Van Halen song, Dance the Night Away. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful. Like, it's it in is, my top it, five. I love the song. It is a very, and, and you know, like yeah. a lot of their songs I, I think are very, they're either like hardcore or like kind of tongue in cheek. And I Dance the Night Away is beautiful. It is like a very, it's a very sexy song. It's like, it's very crisp. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just think Van Halen 2 kind of captures them fully formed and firing on all cylinders. So, so yeah, no, I get why we're consolidating them a little bit, but like, I, I think it, it warrants mentioning that it is, I think it's their third best album. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to piggyback on a couple of things that all of you have said so far. So Omar, I'll start, like, I, I think one of the fascinating things about Van, first of all, I love the fact I, I love Dance the Night Away too. I think we all kind of agree. That's a great pop rock song. And yeah. a lot of this album was also written at the same time the rest of Van Halen 1 was. So it's it's no it's no surprise to me that like DOA, Dead or Alive or Beautiful Girls sound like Van Halen 1 yeah. because they were all kind of all precursors to the demos that Gene Simmons recorded. Um, I One of the funniest things about Dance the Night Away, and I went back and I found this recently, an uh, in, in old, old interview from like 79 with David Lee Roth, where he... He was talking about, and I don't know if this is tongue in cheek or, or this may have been serious, but he said he wanted, in response to that song, he said he wanted them to be the hard rock Beach Boys. And that, oh, that was so great. That's what David Lee Roth wanted to do. He was like, I want to write hard. I want to write heavy metal songs that people dance to and sing to. And it was like, that was, I mean, oh, I can, it, it, it totally sums up what he said. That um, definitely puts him in the, the opening salvo of his solo career in, a, in, a, in an interesting oh, way. Oh, absolutely does. Yeah, that's total foreshadowing. Um, Chris, with fair warning. I, I, I agree with you. I think that's an, uh, a fantastic album in kind of a dark way. Um, I would say Mean Streets and, and Unchained are probably two songs in my top five Van Halen songs ever. The thing that I liked about Mean Street, which was a really neat trick that Eddie kind of came up with, and then other artists I know have copied, with like Slash, in terms of song construction. That song does something really interesting that I'd never heard at the time until now I hear it all the time. But the opening riff of the song is played an octave higher than the verses, but it's the same riff. And I think it's really, really cool. Like if you can, if you guys can envision that song, that that's how it opens. And then when the singing comes in, the verse is a whole octave lower. It's way down deep. Guns N' Roses does that a ton of, and I, and I feel like they that was a trick that they found that was really interesting to the listener, um, and it serves the vocal a little bit more. And then finally, the only other thing I'm going to add, and we'll talk about it, I don't know how much we're going to talk about Diver Down, but because we talked about covers, and the cover songs was kind of the beginning of the end of the David Lee Roth era. Specifically, as Tom said, and the cradle will rock, that was kind of the beginning. The, the, the seeds were sown for descent at that moment, because that song was written on keyboards. And there is a notorious story that uh, it's been recycled a lot of times. So there's a lot of credibility to this. But David Lee Roth basically told Eddie at that time, he goes, make that keyboard sound like a fucking guitar or we're not playing it. That That is so interesting to me because when you think about the, the fissures in their relationship, and I agree that Diver Down was one of like the big first pivot point the narrative that Edward Van Halen like stuck with um, like for the rest of his life was just that like, listen, the rest of us are traditional guitar, bass, drums, um, musician. And like our conflict with Roth is that like 
that's not his bag. He doesn't want to do rock and roll. And like one of the last big interviews he did in 2015, again, one of you brought up Chuck Klosterman, and he's been like a really wonderful source of, of writing on Van Halen. And like his one of his last big interviews was with Billboard magazine was with Chuck Klosterman. And, you know, he, they were still they were still with Roth in this last phase. And they had sort of settled into this sort of like amicable, you know, yet distant relationship where they were together and touring and they had that record and it was fine, but they were never going to be close, which I think is actually kind of beautiful, <laughs> accepting our limitations with each other. But one thing he said was, like, the, the fundamental issue with our band, and remember, this is 2015, Eddie Van Halen is saying the fundamental issue with our band is that three of us want to do rock and roll music and one person wants to do dance music. That's, that's the issue. Um, and it's just so funny that you said that about the keyboards. Um, and I have no doubt that that story is true, but it's just it's just funny how the narrative, you know, like ended up flipping a little bit. I think Diver Down is the weakest of the of the original six, the Roth albums. Um, I, I know what I, what I was looking up was after they did their uh, the tour for Fair Warning, Eddie wanted to take a break. He wanted to take like a year off to just go back and do a lot of songwriting and kind of like reinvent and, and re-energize. And Roth wanted them to basically do a cover of Dancing in the Streets. And basically, to just to, they, had, they had been on tour, and he's like, we need to put out a new song so people know we're still alive and we're still kicking. And he, he played the, the original Martha and the Vandells one, and Eddie's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this one, but here's a Roy Orbison song, Oh, Pretty Woman. So they, they released that um, really quick. And I always think of the movie Weird Science when I hear it, of uh, <laughs> right, Kelly Lincoln right, Brock right. coming up the escalator <laughs> in the mall. The, that song became a huge hit, and the, studio, the record company was basically like, get back in the studio now and record another album. We need it within we need it in like two weeks um yeah. and for and, the first for the first time in their careers they were out of material yeah yeah and that's why five out of the 12 songs on downer diver down are covers yeah. um they just start going through that and like and the, i think a lot of the others were basically the, like the leftovers and unreleased tracks that they had kind of in their thing so yeah, I co-sign what you guys were saying. Dance the Night Away is one of my favorite songs of theirs. Um, I, I love Unchained and Everybody Wants Some. I mean, there there are hits, there are standouts on all of these albums. Um, and I just and, and real quick uh, on the topic of Dance the Night Away, you know, a, a very underrated thing. And Neil, I'm not sure if you brought this up earlier. You might have, but like, I, I think Michael Anthony really needs to be acknowledged as yes. a wonderful yep. singer, a yep. wonderful singer. Like his voice is. He's got an so operatic tenor. He's, oh, he's, he's, it's, 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 it's crazy. You could not have the success of the choruses in their band without yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and, and, you know, I, I'm upset for a lot of reasons about like, the way they treated uh, Michael Anthony. And me too. And, me too. you know, and the thing is I, I like, I like uh, Eddie's son. He's like, he's very good at bass and he seems like a very nice, very normal, normal person. Uh, and I like that about him, but I, I think you lose a lot when you jettison someone uh, with vocal qualities and, and bass guitar playing skills like Michael Anthony. And, and to a substantial extent, it was never really the same, uh, even though ostensibly bass is one of the easier um, instruments to like replace in a band. But like the, the way he sang, like his vocals 
uh, were really, really a distinctive part of the sound. Agree 100%. Are you you suggesting that maybe nepotism didn't work out? Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of the rare, rare times, you know? (laughs) <laughs> to add, because you were you were talking about, and I've just danced that highway has been running through my head ever since you guys were talking about it. And I was thinking of, and and again, points that we'll bring up later when we talk about Eddie as the like kind of the pinnacle, the '80s that era's guitar player. Of how many bands, pop rock bands from that era, are kind of were kind of chasing that song in a sense. And you think of of. And I think of like everything poisoned it. Yeah, every <laughs> yeah, poisoned okay. crew, or even even to a certain extent. Even though even though I do love me some Journey, but there's some Journey songs where I'm like, you know, you, you feel like like they're trying to capture something that Van Halen just got like perfect. And you know, maybe I'm just kind of waxing this band's car a little bit here, but that song just there's a there's a quintessence about it, and and it seems like there that that are there are a lot of there are a lot of groups that are just that try to duplicate it and don't always hit the mark and some might come close but but and it's the same thing with with eddie and like you were saying omar about the vocals the the harmonies and the choruses and things like that there's just like elements of these songs that if it's that could really easily sound like a cheap knockoff and yeah. there's a lot of bands like that yeah like that like a song like dance the night away is the reason why they're a little more asymmetrical in that genre Mm-hmm. Um, while they'll always be like a little bit distinctive. And I really think in the same way that Eruption, I was saying, kind of epitomizes Eddie Van Halen's sort of reason for being. I think Dance the Night of Way sort of epitomizes the very best of the marriage of the talents of Edward Van Halen and Roth and, and his showmanship and like uh, Michael Anthony's vocal work. Like, I think that is sort of like epitomizes what Van Halen was when it was firing in all cylinders and sort of meaning its ambition to be something outside of traditional metal. It wasn't just a hard rock, heavy metal. They had, I don't want to say pop sensibilities, but they had an awareness and they knew how to yeah. play into that. No, they did. Into yeah. that when, when they definitely did. And but, I think that takes us to uh, the album 1984, which may very well be the high watermark for the band. This is the last album with the original four lineup. Uh, this was their commercially their most successful album. This when was one, that released, by the way? Interestingly enough, the year, 1984. Oh, nice. Um, uh, I, real quick, I think 5150 <laughs> was actually more commercially successful than 1984. Was it? Okay, because I... Yeah, it reached number one. Okay. I think 1984 sold more copies. Ah, okay. Ryan, you're right. My bad. Okay. Yeah. And and yeah, and well, as I was mentioning, the uh, 1984 reached number two on the Billboard charts. The album that kept it out of the number one spot, does anybody know? I do. Roll Rain. Uh, Thriller. 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 Which also happened to feature a guest guitar performance by Eddie Van Halen on the song Beat It. Uh, So he actually, he contributed to both the number one and number two albums that year. It was a good year for him. It was. It definitely was. (laughs) Um, And it was also a kind of a a, a seismic shift uh, in his, that maybe, uh, maybe caused the, the rift and the breakup of the band or maybe kept the band contemporary and, and relevant for the next phase in the next couple of years because this was the album where Eddie really embraced the, the synthesizer and made that a, a as much a signature part of, of their pop hits as his guitars. I think everybody's story kind of mentioned how this was the album that kind of got them into it. Tom, what, what did you think about 1984? I'm looking at the track listing. Is there a skip on this album? There was a meme going around. Oh, God, time has lost any meaning. I think it was like six months ago where people were listing albums that had no skips on them. And I'm like, I'm looking at this. I'm like, I can't think of a, a song on this 
album that I would skip. I just I'm looking at it and like I said, maybe the, maybe the intro, nineteen eighty four, the instrumental part. Yeah, but I understand why it's there. I always liked listening to it as a lead in to jump, partially because <laughs> I played the piano for so many years. So the, mm. there, there's that part of it. But it also seems like a like it's like a like it's like a synth companion piece or trying to be a synth companion piece to eruption you really got me it, and and i wonder if he did that deliberately or if he was just kind of messing around with synthesizers in in that way if um, that's true though I, just my personal opinion i think yeah. the the intruder the instrumental that led into pretty woman off a of diver down i think that that was a better synth instrument mm, okay but yeah jump jump in panama panama is probably one of my it, that's in my top five of yeah. Van Halen songs, and because it's it's one of those like really perfect just rock songs. And uh, I love the drum intro on Hot for Teacher, but Hot for Teacher is a song that I've that I grew very very tired of <laughs> after a while. Um, even I don't hate it. It's just it's just one of those songs where I don't listen to it very often because if not for the video, I would feel the same way. But the, yeah, the, the high school kid <laughs> in me watching that video, I never got sick of it. Yeah, there are a lot of videos like that from the eighties where I would get sick of watching the. <laughs> Um, my wife and I are gearing up to do an episode about a certain George Michael video that debuted 30 years ago. Um, but, nice. but back to Van Halen. Yeah. But with, with jump. So, so the eighties, there's two things that could, could have possibly ruined rock and roll in the eighties. One was the synthesizer and the other one was the saxophone. And he, <laughs> think about how many shitty sax solos are in 80 songs, but there's so many shitty synth parts in 80 songs, especially as you get later in the decade, this jump he nails it so perfectly. So once again, he's like setting a bar that like, it's really hard to clear the bar that jump sets because it has the, it has the synthesizer he's going for, but it, but Roth gives it this swagger that is like Hagar never really came close to duplicating. And that very few singers on the level of him, like who like Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler, like, you know, that level of, of, of swagger, you don't get that out of many rock and roll singers. Um, and, and you get it in a song that's very synth heavy. It's, it's, it's something that's incredibly hard to pull off. To, to use to, for a vulgar term, it, he captures that sort of walking erection part of the rock star that I that I think you get from from Mick Jagger and David Lee Roth. They definitely that kind of swagger that it's just like it's just this like kind of like oozing sex and confidence. And but I, I think yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I would just say that like the difference between Mick Jagger and David Lee Roth is that a little bit of David Lee Roth goes a long way. Uh, and I, I just think that there's a certain like element of his presence that makes it makes any group dynamic probably unsustainable over the long run. And I bring this up at this juncture because I think 1984 is sort of epitomizes David Lee Roth's like the David Lee Roth era. And like you guys were talking about, I think it brings out his talent. I think jump is, I think Jump is like maybe one of the 15 best pop songs ever written. I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect in every, every venue. Uh, you can play it at parties. You can play it at like, you know, at, at, a, at a roller rink. It's, it has a, it's, it's both dated and timeless. It's weird. Mm -hmm. But I think that that album and the music videos, because I think also that that album happened at a time when like 84, 83, that was when like MTV was really sort of, it was past its infancy. It was just sort of, hitting its stride. So like the videos sort of epitomized like Roth's showmanship. And that is one of the biggest selling points of that record. Like his, his songwriting, I, I feel like he had more input into the lyrics in that album than maybe any other album. I'm sure he did the lion's share of lyrics in most albums, but I think this record really reflected his aesthetic 
uh, and his songwriting sensibilities. And, and so, so from that standpoint, it is both perfect and it is also a natural pivot point as to why to me it's totally understandable that like they parted ways after it. Because unlike Mick Jagger, who there's this, a lot of gravitas underneath his sort of campy bullshit shtick, with Roth, that's all there is. And I just don't see that as something durable over the long term, if that makes sense. But like, I think what a way to go out, like in terms of like 1984 and like just the number of singles it had. And you may think about the year that it came out and the number and, and the number of quality albums that were happening. I know it was December 31st, 83, technically, but it is an album of 1984. But like you're competing against like Purple Rain and like Born in the USA and like Thriller still like ruling the charts. And like, I, I just, it, it holds its own. It holds its own from a songwriting standpoint. It holds its own from like an aesthetic standpoint. It's, it is a real high point of that decade. I'm going to take a little bit of a different opinion with this and I put a lot of thought into this leading into this podcast and I've always kind of felt this way about the album. I like the album. It's a great album. I think the album's overrated. I think that once you get past the three, four big songs that were the singles, you know, including I'll Wait, which we haven't really talked about, uh, I think the rest of the material is kind of mediocre Van Halen, which by any other measure is still great music. But there might be something where I hold against the album. There's no deep cuts on this album that I really love. They're my favorite Van Halen songs. Every other Van Halen wow. album has at least one or two deep cuts that like make my favorite list. This album, it's the four big songs, and the rest are like, they're fine. I mean, I like them. You know, then it becomes this weird thing of how you measure an album because the, the songs on this that are great are, I, you know, I think Hot for Teacher, Jump, and Panama are three of their best songs. And, you know, I'll echo everything everyone has said about Jump. I mean, listening to that album or that song now, like, you know, like to Omar's point, very, he put it very well, where it's like it's dated and but still like relevant at the same time. Like, I mean, you have to go to like, you know, like Tangerine Dream to get a more of an (laughs) 80s cheesy synth sound. And yet somehow it still works. And, you know, so and then Panama is just might be my favorite Van Halen song. I mean, the, the, you know, that's where you got to give a lot of credit, I think, to, to Alex on drums in that song, because there's the, the, the driving, oh, God, beat, yeah. the, the, yep. the punch of that song, the way they, they somehow mesh that, uh, that drum beat and the guitar riff is just like, you know, man, it's, it's, it's great. And, um, but yeah, so like you, 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 you know, if you like give like a, you do the math on it, you give like a numerical score for every song, it's going to rate high as an album because those songs for me are like, you know, like tens. I mean, they're great songs, but then, and this is where, you know, I think it's kind of interesting. I came to this conclusion because as I said previously, I'm hardcore, you know, till the day I die team Roth, but I will make the argument that 5150 is a better album. 
because I, I think the high points on 1984 are better, but I think as a consistent album, I think 5150 is better. I actually, I, I might be more on your side with this one than, than some of the others. Um, because I, I enjoy this album, but the, the highs for me aren't as high. And I was trying to put myself in the place. And I, I kind of had to like step back and say, if I had been a fan of the band, Neil, what's my line? If I had been a fan of the Van Halen from Jump, <laughs> starting with the late 70s, and I had followed them for seven years to this point, I don't know what I would have thought about Jump and I'll Wait and kind of like the, the new sound and everything like that. And th- this album has, like, I mean, Panama and Jump are classics. I love those songs. I mean, you put it, like what everybody else said, I would put those up with anything. But kind of what Omar said, this song also highlights some of the things that bother me with David Lee Roth. And to, to, to what Tom was saying, like for me, this one does have a big skip in it, which is I don't like the song Hot for Teacher because I'm not really a fan of David, what David Lee Roth brings to it. I love the drums. I love the intro. I love the music to it. But something about – and I, maybe I can't distinguish it from the video, but just like the whole vibe I get from the song, I don't like it. It feels kind of cheesy and obnoxious it, to me. Is it too campy? I think so. I think think so. And I also, because of the segue and the time period where we're getting to, because this was the break, I kind of lump this one in because these were the videos that I watched in rapid succession. It's this one. And then Roth's solo stuff with California girls and just a gigolo. And I never liked those. And from those I saw, okay, when he doesn't have the rest of the band with him, the musicianship really isn't there. He's just the showman. He's just the ringmaster without the rest of the circus. And it kind of just comes off like a little bit more of a clown in those, in those contexts. So I have kind of a love hate feeling for David Lee Roth, um, which is, I, I, and maybe it's just that, that phrase, a little of him goes a long way because mm-hmm. I love him on the early stuff. I love his vocals and what he brings to the, those early songs. The fact that for being like a, kind of like a metal, a hard rock singer, he doesn't have a falsetto or like he doesn't go castrato with his voice. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Deeper. And it's got a, like a little bit more of a, a vibration tone to it. I like that tone. I like him as just like the, you know, just like rocking out the, that overconfidence, that, that front man. The, the, I mean, when you look at the Van Roth era, the Van Halen Roth era with him, he is the front man of the band. He is standing shoulder to shoulder with Eddie Van Halen, possibly eclipsing him as the lead singer of this one. When you get to Sammy Hagar, as much as I like some of the Sammy Hagar songs, that was always Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. And he was eclipsed by, even though he was the singer, he was never standing out in front of Eddie. It always seemed to me like Sammy Hagar was the second guy in the band. This is a perfect launching pad to kind of just discuss the dichotomy of the singer kind of thing. I think this album, you you guys have all touched on the exact... Uh, I'm going to, first of all, I want to mention something Chris talked about, which is, or actually something all you guys talked about. I actually really do like the deep cuts on this album. I like the second, I like Drop Dead Legs and I like House of Pain. However, let me preface this that I don't like the vocals. I don't like the lyrics. The musician part of me loves those guitar songs. So this is, I think, when I started to kind of, and maybe it was the older me, maybe it was after, I mean, it was certainly not when I first got this album. I wasn't dissecting lyrics at the time that I got it. But the older part of me now going back and listening to all this stuff, it's definitely, this is where I start to see the Vegas part of David Lee Roth coming out. Like, I just see him just wanting to be, Ryan, you said it, a clown. 
And I also see, like Omar said, this is, you can see exactly where this album would lead to the separation of powers, so to speak. And I agree from what I, from what I understand now as an adult and through all my research and everything, David was always a bully. David Lee Roth was always, he, he was, he was a bully from the start. He wanted to be his band and Eddie and Alex were very insecure at the beginning because they were immigrants to Pasadena. They didn't, they spoke Dutch when they first got here. Eddie's Eddie and Alex's mom is Indonesian. So they were a mixed race family kind of, so there was all this stuff like they were bullied as kids and they hung out with the other immigrants. That's what they did. Eddie is also naturally introverted, whereas yeah 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 very much so and i've heard stories that like dave used to yell at eddie for not moving around enough and he would throw drumsticks at him in the early days because eddie was just standing there playing the guitar he wanted it to be more of a show so i think what what's interesting to me is so dave had this domineering sort of taskmaster vegas show kind of thing or throughout the early years which served him well to a certain extent but gradually, album by album, I see Eddie Van Halen gaining more confidence in his ability and gaining more innovation and creativity and wanting to expand the sound of the band and get to this stuff where then eventually somehow you got to you got to admit at some point from what Roth said about the Women and Children First album to where Jump is the lead single for 1984. Eddie won that argument at some point. It, you know, the tables kind of flipped and then you can see Eddie then being, no, I'm taking over this band. I am going to make this... I for good or bad, whether you like it or not, this is the, t- the 1984 was the album where I feel like Eddie had complete control of the album. Well, he and, also this one was produced in his studio. He built his own studio. Yeah, yeah 5150. Yeah, that was that was the name of it. Yeah, absolutely right. So anyway, so so long story short, um, I love this album. But for the for like what Chris was saying about the deeper cuts, I like the deeper cuts, but not for vocals like David Lee Roth doesn't seem like it a standout to me like I can kind of sense the like now when I, knowing everything I know about Van Halen listen to this album now I can almost listen to it through Eddie's ears and just be annoyed by David Lee Roth if that makes any sense I can see how he was just an annoyance at this point he was so comical and so over the top and I remember him being on MTV every second making these funny quips and barbs and trying to be like a poet like this weird like he was just a clown mm-hmm. and and I feel like yeah you could see the beginning is the end now the last thing I'm going to say about this album which will then lead us to the next discussion and this is really i don't know how you guys feel about this stuff but chris touched on this a minute ago he said 5150 is a better album top to bottom i agree with that however the one thing that really bothered me about the future of van halen was eddie van halen's guitar sound that i love the brown sound it's been it's been quoted as call he called it the brown sound ended with 1984 at this point, from this moment forward, going forward, he became such a technical tone chaser. Like he, he, he was like a MacGyver in the studio, a MacGyver with his with his guitars, with his amps, with his settings, and he never was satisfied. He was like a mad genius, and I'll talk about this stuff later on as we go forward with the albums. But they lost that dirty '70s distortion guitar sound, mm-hmm. and it was like the last album that had it was '84. And I don't think they ever got that sound back. And then I'm even talking about drums too. Like 5150, you can hear Alex playing electronic drums. Like the whole sound of the band changed with Sammy Hagar. Now the song. Yeah, there's a refinement. There's a refinement yeah. to 5150. Right. And as we go forward, we'll talk about the songwriting, I think improved. I think it improved exponentially. Eddie's, Eddie's compositions as a whole got better. But I'm a big fan of the brown sound from the, from the Van Halen, from the Roth era. And it changed. 
back to what I said when I, I, I took two Van Halen albums with me to college. I took Van Halen and I took 5150. And to me, they're very comparable in quality. They're like neck and neck, which one I like better. But I could almost call them two different bands. Yeah, um, I would, I would like, say the same thing. Like, And that's kind of like when everybody's like, you know, are you people may, may, like make this a, a blood feud, David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar, which side are you on? You know, which which team are you on? I'm like, you, you're really, I mean, you're talking about two different bands with two different sounds. I mean, there's, uh, I, I think the, what Omar said, there's, there's a refinement to to the Van Hagar era, which would sound a little bit more adult, a little bit more polished and kind of more pop sensible and, and, and catchy versus the rawness, the, the naked energy of the earlier years. Um, and it's just kind of like, what's like, I don't think one is necessarily superior to the other. It's just, what is your preference? So, but but yeah, I, I mean, fifty-one fifty. I, certainly, I have a preference. When I came in, uh, Roth was outro. He he was on his way out. By the time I was taping over my GI Joe cartoons for that video, <laughs> like this, this album was already out. It was that. It was the Sammy Hagar era. So I definitely have a lot of more nostalgic. Uh, feelings for this one um, and I, I love 51 like why can't this be love dreams love walks in summer nights best of both worlds 5150 so many great songs and and, and uh, Tom mentioned the the video for dreams with the the blue angels the, the sh- like that was my first music video that, that, or like the first like, <laughs> music video that I was like this is awesome I love this I want to watch this all the time I'm with you on this. This is the, it's such a great album and the, it is, it's way, it's way slicker. It's way more produced. And it just, it makes me think of the mid to late eighties, which as a decade as a whole, there's more of a sheen or a pastel on that than when I think of it, when I think of the early. Yeah. Get glossy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think of albums of the late eighties uh, aside from that, that were like kind of had that raw sensibility that aren't appetite for destruction. And, you know, so like, you know, the, they were still out there, but for the most part, you had a lot of over almost overproduced. I don't think this is particularly overproduced, although Mick Jones from foreigner was involved in the production of this album, partially because Warner's wouldn't give the band total control of things. Hagar, um, like I said, I knew Hagar prior to to hearing Fifty One Fifty for the first time because of like you know over the top and other. Um, I probably had heard I Can't Drive Fifty Five at least once, and then a couple of other songs from like his eighty seven solo album that Eddie helped produce because your love is driving me crazy. Remember yeah. that one? He had a song on Footloose too. What was his song? The girl gets. Oh, around. I had that tape too, and I can't remember. Well, Ryan, remember he did uh, he did Rick Springfield's uh, uh, I've Done Everything for You. Yep. Yeah, yeah. he wrote that. And he um and he also had a, he has a song on um not particularly great song on the Fast Times or Jamal High soundtrack but but with Sammy Hagar brings in terms of the the approach to the vocal and and I don't know if 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 the vocal matches up the lyrics but there's this like there's this like sincerity in a lot of the songs that he brings to the band that um, I don't think Roth could have pulled off because he was so always winking at the camera all the time and 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 Hagar is very very straightforward and sometimes he swings and misses and I will get to balance in a little while, but, um, but with this one, he hits and uh, there's nothing, 
except for like maybe summer nights, which um, I, I did a podcast episode a couple of years ago about Van Hagar. And I referred to summer nights as the soundtrack to every wet sh- t-shirt contest at every spring break. <laughs> it is also the soundtrack to the very classic SNL Schmidt's gay ad. Um, Wait, wasn't that beautiful girls? No, I'm pretty sure it was summer. Was nights. It summer nights? Yeah. No, it was it, no, it was beautiful girls. It was beautiful. That was that, that was the irony of it because oh, okay, gay. then maybe yeah, maybe it was okay. used in another beer commercial. I could have sworn it was. It, yeah. It, it, real, it, real quick, Tom, I just want yeah. to jump in real quick. I think yeah. this is funny that you mentioned Summer Nights because of that entire album. That's the only song I could hear Roth singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a very Roth song because it has so that. Rock. Yeah, it's it, totally. It has, it's almost maybe it was a leftover or something. You know? <laughs> but like, why can't this be Love and Dreams um, for a band that was known for? hot for teacher and that was known for you know uh <laughs> some of david lee roth's antics are songs that are, it's, it's hard to make that switch so and, and i really i really like the uh the sound of why can't this be love mm-hmm. um and dreams <laughs> like you said ryan it's hard to separate it from the video and it's it's such an earnest song that it it it, it, it toes the line comes right up to cheesy in my mind, it, it doesn't always get there, but I, maybe I'm looking at through a nostalgia covered glasses. Um, Love Walks In is good, but um, there's a live version of that that's much better than the one on the uh, album. I'm, I'm, if I'm looking across my room, I actually have somebody gave me the live right here, right now, VHS <laughs> years ago when I was in high school. And uh, they did it in a. Um, or part of that song at one point. And, uh, and I remember liking it a lot more than, or they did it on the CD and, and I liking it a lot more than on the album because they kind of stripped the synth down when they played it live and the synth on love walks in does not work, but yeah, it's just, um, it, it's a really, if you're going to do a complete makeover of the band and completely change because you have a brand new singer and you want it to work. Um, this is one of the few times it's, actually successful because i i try to think of bands dropping a lead singer and and adding another one and and it's rare that it actually outside of metal because i know like sabbath did it and iron maiden did it a couple of times and i'm not even that familiar acdc yeah acdc acdc is probably the only other example i can think actually yes the only other example i can think of where they've been where they consistent afterward but yeah yeah omar what'd you think of 5150 yeah, so um, I co-sign all of these points. I would I would add a couple of things. Um, I don't think it is a secret that fifty one fifty is the high water mark of the Sammy Hagar era. But I but in terms of the contrast that we were positing with it and its predecessor, and with you know some and some of the 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 Roth albums, my take on it is that from a commercial standpoint. It is an unqualified success. And given the heightened expectations at the time after Roth quit, and I just want to clarify, like they didn't fire him. He, he quit. Like he left them in a lurch. Correct. Um, like, and, and so like Eddie has been on record saying like how kind of as pissed off as they were at each other in perpetuity, like wh- while they were together that first run, he was still in shock and disappointed and sort of at wit's end when Roth abruptly walked away. And so like they were really at a precipice. Um, and, and, you know, you're going into that next phase of writing and recording really, you know, with something to prove with your commercial prospects kind of shaky with your long-term viability suddenly under question. And I think from a commercial standpoint, that is an unqualified success. And what I will say is everyone is right. There is a refinement to the sound, but there is also a deal they made 
like long-term in terms of the sort of efficacy of the songwriting in terms of like the dirtiness of the songwriting in terms of like the rawness of the sound, they sign that away. And that is fine for the short term for what they needed to accomplish with 5150. I've always thought that like 5150 sort of epitomized the Hagar, the best of the Hagar era in that if you're going to contrast it with David Lee Roth, it's like there's a higher floor, but a lower ceiling in terms of like the songwriting and production potential. Because I think the the sounds of the Roth era and the songwriting of the Roth era could be almost too raw and they could go off kilter and it could just be sound almost too dirty. But when you knock it out of the park, oh my goodness, you know, you're sort of reaching the stratosphere. And I think with, with 5150, you're basically just kind of hitting consistent singles and the occasional double. And that's good. I also think, you know, to everyone's point, that album sort of epitomizes the fundamental difference in songwriting approach between like Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth. Like, again, it's a trade-off. So you're getting the polish and consistency of a much better inherent vocalist. Like Sammy Hagar is just a much better singer. Like, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, Like, over the course of his career, both with Van Halen and outside of Van Halen, he has been, you know, he has he's an outstanding vocalist, whereas Roth, even in his best points, was kind of inconsistent. And, like, now, in the last, like, 10 or 15 years, has been kind of a train wreck. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that, but I think that you also get a different kind of approach to songwriting. And, you know, I went, jumped down the rabbit hole with David Lee Roth, like a few months ago on a Joe Rogan podcast, which I kind of regret because, uh, just, it was, it was very long. Um, but one thing he was saying, he was drawing a contrast, uh, between, you know, their styles. And he was just like, like, like Sammy Hagar's approaches in certain songwriting. He's talking about like, why can't this be love? How do I know when it's love? And he's like, motherfucker, I ain't talking about love. You know, that's, that's the approach. And so like, there is a, a sheen and a polish and a professionalism to 5150 that I really respect. I think best of both worlds is a great song. Um, I think dreams is good, but again, it signifies like a decision that they're making and it gets, it gets them a mass audience, but it, it does nothing that the stuff we were talking about earlier that like were the earlier David Lee Roth era they separated themselves out as something above and beyond like a pop metal band. Um, I think the decision to go with Sammy Hagar and the songs from 5150, as solid and consistent as they were, um, I think that part of the deal they made was, okay, we're going to be a proficient version of like an ordinary 80s band. Like some of the singles are catchy for what they are, but it's never going to resonate in the stratosphere. And that's fine for, for the magic trick they had to pull off to prove that they were a viable entity after David Lee Roth left. I think 5150 is like the best mission statement they could have done under very trying circumstances. Um, it is a professional sounding record. I am fine listening to it every once in a while. It's never going to be a great album. Um, and that's what you get with Hagar and it's fine. But I think there is something, there is like a, a, a beating heart that is missing. Um, and I think this was the high point of, of the Sammy Hager era and it goes quickly downhill, but it is very polished is very consistent. And to, to a degree, it is enjoyable to something that both of you guys were saying, like, why can't this be love? And like the, the more of the love songs that you, you wouldn't buy them coming from David Lee Roth. Like he doesn't have that sincerity or that earnestness. I, I think maybe he wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to him to write songs like this. Yeah. Like defining this album and, and the Hagar era is they, they're writing more 
rock love songs, whereas David Lee Roth was writing rock party songs. Yeah, uh, Sammy Hagar is like the romantic comedy of the movie industry. You know, that was yeah, yeah. that was kind of like the, the commercial, the commercial hit romantic comedy. Oh, Omar, I, I I don't know if this holds up anywhere. I just thought of this. Do you remember a really outside analogy I made to the two lead singers to you a long time ago? Uh, I don't. What was it? All right, I was comparing them to the uh, to the first two leads of the police drama NYPD Blue. Oh, I, okay. I, I told you that David Lee Roth was the David Caruso. He was sure. the the smoldering, hot, sexy, you know, just guy who blur, burned bright very quickly, and then and then just had to go because of ego and other concerns and everything. And Sammy Hagar was the Jimmy Smith's replacement. Um, that was just like very solid, very capable, more professional, more talented, and just, and just but um, but you missed some of the uh, the the energy and that rawness. I yeah, really I want right. I want I want Chris to jump in and answer the David Caruso being a smoldering hot <laughs> comment. Well, I mean, I think we're all in agreement on that. Um, I do think it's interesting though with that analogy, Ryan. That makes that makes that makes Rick Schroeder Gary Sharon. And I think well, that holds I'm up. I think that holds up. And who's Mark Paul Gosler? Mark Paul Gosler would be the um, when when Sammy Hagar came back for the no the, no the Mark Paul Gosler would be Mitch Malloy, the guy hey, that was, came the the guy that came in to sing demos before they hired Gary Sharon. There was a fourth singer that no one knows about because they didn't release anything, but they brought in a singer named Mitch Malloy, and he was a friend of Eddie's. He sang some demos, and then they were like gave him the boot. <laughs> Wait, was, was Mark Paul Gosler on NYPD Blue? He was for like three years. Yeah, yeah. All right. I guess he, I guess he is. I the think he replaced Rick Schroeder. He did. He did. Oh, okay. Hey, by oh, the way, okay. speaking of random like musical chairs of singers, do you guys know that before Sammy got the job, Eddie extended an offer to Steve Perry of Journey? And Steve Perry mm-hmm. said, I can't go on tour and do David Lee Roth songs. I don't have the vocal. Like, that's not my, I, that, I'm not that singer. And so he turned it down. Huh. I, I heard that. He also, I mean, to be fair, he apparently extended a number of invitations, including for like Patty Smythe from Scandal. Mm-hmm. And for a, a, a quick minute, he was considering doing um, like a, an album featuring a good like anthology album. Yeah. 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 So like they were really, listen, they were really in a bind after Roth left. And like, so for as much as I was just like kind of, you know, crapping on Sammy Hagar uh, indirectly. Like, no, I, I think that what they were able to pull off in terms of like maintaining their commercial viability, remember 5150 was their first number one album. Yep. Like it is nothing short of stupendous. And I would also say that like for all the other groups that have had like multiple lead singers, I think Van Halen's the only one where the, each lead singer has such a unique presence that sort of epitomizes and cleaves the era and defines it in terms of like the type of songwriting um, and the energy on the craftsmanship that like and that shaped the band. Whereas with a lot of other bands that threw, that switched out lead singers, that was just very that was a very benign switch, right? Like the the machine kept going. Um, but like the the Sammy Hagar era, I think of Van Halen albums beginning with Fifty One Fifty emphasized the Sammy Hagar sensibility.
Chris, what did you think of 5150? You said that you actually preferred this, or you thought this was a better album than 1984. Yeah, I mean, preferred, I'm not sure. That, that's a tough question. I mean, the calculus on this is, because, you know, as a lot of you have pointed out, I mean, you're also talking, you're almost talking about two different bands here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The sound change, the, the, you know, the style change, and it's like, to be fair, you kind of have to judge them on their independent merits. So then it's, you know, becomes this thing of like comparing, you know, the Rolling Stones versus the Beatles or, you know, something like that, where it's like, yeah, it's, not the, it's not the same. So when I think it's a better album than 1984, I'm not sure if that means that I prefer it over 1984. I'm not sure if I'm willing to go that far with it at this point. But I do think in terms of its construction, in terms of its, you know, its sensibility, I mean, it's, I think it is a superior album primarily because as you know, and this is kind of the big dividing point between these two eras is it's a pop album as opposed mm-hmm. to totally. a rock album. Yeah. yeah, totally. And it was and it was it was it was geared to be that way. I think that was kind of a canny decision they made to kind of yeah. orientate it more to radio friendly music as opposed to you know going in a, in a heavier rock direction. But I, I think it is a good album. Um, you know, Omar seems to fall short of saying it's a great album. I, I think it could be. I mean, I think it's an interesting mirror to Van Halen one. You know, like if you're going to pick one album from each of those eras. You know, I, I would say if you want to get to know David Lee Roth, era Van Halen, listen to Van Halen one. If you want to know, you know, Van Hagar, listen to fifty one fifty. That I and will agree with. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and they're both yeah. they're very emblematic of those eras. And you know, like them, you know, for for better or worse, fifty one fifty is a loaded album. I mean, there's like four or five considered classic songs on there. I I, I like Dreams. Um, I've come around to it. I don't think I liked it when it was you know, a single and I thought it was cheesy, but I, I I mean, it's a good pop song. And, you know, when love walks in, it's a good pop song and, you know, there's, and there's some good rock tracks on there too. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough calculus. I mean, one thing I find interesting about it is, or at least that album is for me, and we'll probably get into this is it's like no contest in terms of where it ranks among that era's material, because I think it's a steep drop off after this album. And, and by the time you get to four unlawful carnal knowledge, I don't even like that album. I think it's a stupid <laughs> album, but you know, whereas Van, Van Halen during the Roth era, like they, they got more mileage out of that partnership mm-hmm. and, you know, more. Sure, that's fair. Than, yeah. You know, there's a lot of albums that come after Van Halen one that maybe not be better than that album, but, stand shoulder to shoulder with it right i think 5150 is as good as van hagar ever got and they never got even close to it again i agree with that neil what do you think okay well now since we've agreed now we're talking about the separation of powers we're doing the van the the david lee roth era versus the van hagar area as you want to call it this is kind of like for me it's like comparing like the bowls of 91 through 93 versus the bowls of 96 to 98 you know yeah it's always gonna you know like from a pure basketball standpoint one is you know has a certain degree of proficiency and whatnot and then the fan in me likes the showmanship of the rodman era and so yeah you know it's hard to say this is almost the identical conversation and i also had to squeeze in a chicago bulls reference in this podcast so that being said Omar, I think that you were unnecessarily harsh a little bit on this album. I think you, mm-hmm. from, from, from your description, and this is, this is why I, I prefaced this earlier in the podcast where I talked about there's the fanboy part of me and then there's the musician part of me. This is where those, those stylistics diverge. And the musician fan in me 
would say that 5150 is the best Van Halen album. I think that what Eddie wrote for this album is top to bottom the best material he's ever written in terms of song structure. Um, you know, a lot of the early stuff, which I love as a fan, are a lot of like just Eddie Van Halen riffs and solos and things like that. But, you know, the, the, there's not a whole lot of complete songs, despite the fact that I love some of those things. And I want to like crank up the volume on them. This was a this was the most like complete up to this point i think that this had the best collection of musical compositions if that makes any sense yet and and, uh, by the way i want to give a shout out to the song 5150 which is the second to last song on the album that's my favorite van halen song of all time Mm. my absolute favorite now the strange thing about this and i mentioned this when we were talking about 84 i'm so disappointed in the production of this album it really bothers me that they did that Eddie changed his guitar sound and it's a cleaner tone. It's not, it's even the distortion is a cleaner distortion and more chorus for any musicians out there that play effects and stuff like that. It's just not a dirgy, grungy crunch sound. So in, in, in summer nights, is a really clean, polished, you guys said it, you know, Tom, you said there's a sheen over it. Like that should be a dirtier, grungier sound for a song like Summer Nights. And it's, it's you know, the song, com- like I said, the song compositions themselves, I think are fantastic. And I love them. And I love the structures of the songs. I love it. And what Sammy brought to the band at this particular point was different than what David, David could never bring this type of stuff. But as much as I say that this is my favorite Van Halen's Van Halen album, I'm so disappointed in the sound of it when I listen to it. It really, it's an album that could have been. Like, it's an album, like, rife with potential. And it, that's, that's, so that, that's where I fall on it. It's a weird, it's a weird dichotomy because this album could have been an all-time great album in the rock annals of history, so to speak. Neil, when on our last uh, episode when we were talking about the band Heart, yeah, we kind of talked about how they went through like the, there were two, two different, different bands. eras, like yeah. in the in the late seventies and everything in the early years, they were more of a kind of rock, uh, more of a well, not quite punk, but they had more of a, a guitar driven rock sound. Yeah, and then by the time you get to the mid eighties with their hits like Alone and These Dreams and All I Want to Do Is Make Love to You, it, they they're they're chasing more of a pop contemporary sound which also coincided with mtv and and the sure not, not oh, just yeah. its rise but it's, its popularity and its mainstream crossover success and they they sort of saw that as their avenue to reach a larger audience and i see i mean van halen might have been doing the same thing maybe just like the just having these music videos and seeing the crossover success and maybe that was part of what Sammy Hagar was bringing to it was more of this crossover mainstream pop rock appeal that yeah, and yeah. I, I also but I also want to get into your whole thing about like how the the discovery of the synthesizer and how Eddie really kind of embraced that and how you you talked about how his his guitar playing actually changed when he started pulling the strap up higher I yeah. wonder if if part of that is just 
natural just age and change. Maturity. I mean, if you're, if maturity. you're, that, yeah, it could be maturity, but it could, it could also just be if he was that good at such a young, early age. I mean, it might have just been getting harder to play the guitar at that level over and over and over every night on tour. And maybe he just saw, you know what? Synthesizers was just a different animal and it was easier and it was something unexplored and, and he kind of got bored with the guitar maybe. Well, here's what's interesting about everything you've said. And I knew at some point we were going to start down this road um, because this is very much, this podcast is very much a tribute to the passing of, one of the guitar legends of all time, Eddie Van Halen. But at some point, I knew that we were going to talk about his, he's a flawed human being. He struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction. And there were a lot of these things. There definitely is a sense, and I know from my research, and we can talk about this stuff as we go on, not necessarily with this album, but when substances take over your life, you know, it stifles your, you, you know, you get lazy in other aspects. And, and kind of things. And I don't want to dig too much into that stuff yet. I don't want to go that route yet. But there definitely was a period of time during this time, Eddie started to heavily, heavily drink on stage and and drink throughout the show and couldn't do a show sober during the 5150 tour and then going forward. That became a known entity. And on top of that, going back to what something you said before, um, Eddie had made it publicly known at the time two specific things. Number one, he wanted it number 84 only got to number two and he wanted his next album to be a number one. So he did gear his writing towards pop sensibilities. You're absolutely right. He wrote a pop album because he wanted a number one album. And number two, there was that elephant in the room, which was David Lee Roth left and basically said, you guys, you guys aren't nothing without me. So then again, from a songwriting standpoint and gear, gear, you know, they, they changed the direction of the band because they were chasing hits. So some, to some degree, it may have a lot to do with Eddie being maybe a little bit lazy with his guitar playing, wanting to do, maybe the keyboards were different. Maybe they were easier. Maybe he was just trying to be more innovative, but you know, I mean, for all intents and purposes and me as a guitar player, I can speak to this. He kind of, you know, Eddie, Eddie was one of those weird prodigies that kind of peaked as a guitar player at 17 years old. Mm -hmm. He continued to challenge himself. He continued to find new things and discover new things. But I don't think he necessarily got better than he was at 17 years old. Then it just became a question of finding new things to challenge himself and finding new avenues. And then it became writing pop songs. And then it became writing keyboard songs. And then it became writing synthesized. You know, there was a lot of that. So... All that stuff, I know we're getting a little off off subject, so to speak, since we're talking about the album 5150. But, Ryan, there's a lot. You might be right about a lot of that stuff. I'm as as we talk about this stuff, I'm kind of getting a little choked up a little bit about the fact that we, you know, the passing of this legend that we're talking about, the reason we're doing this podcast, you know, a lot of his demise was self-induced. And right. so I'll leave it at that. All right, let's kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I, I will be surprised if anybody challenges this, but I, I think we can kind of go through the next three albums, the the end mm -hmm. of the the Hagar era with OU812 in 1988 for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, cheekily titled in 1991, <laughs> and, and then Balance in 1995. Um, I agree with everyone who has said that 5150 is the best Hagar album by yes. quite uh, by quite a lot. Um, I think each of these songs, each of these albums, have some good songs, but it's 
some of them it, it's limited to their their singles really and there aren't as many deep cuts that i i pay attention to with these tom you mentioned right now and how ubiquitous it was at the beginning oh god um, songs everywhere and that that was an album that i liked it when i first heard it and then i think through just through overexposure there was a backlash to it and then coming back to it and listening to it again recently i was like Okay, it's a it's a pop rock song, but it, I mean it's pretty damn well constructed and written if you if you take it on on those merits. And the piano, mm. Eddie's piano in the song is really really damn good, about as good as anything else that he ever did with keyboards or synths. I think. And right now, um, I actually read something from um, I, the Billboard did like a review of of a bunch of the Van Halen songs, like their best stuff. And whoever was writing the article said that. Neil, uh, if the Chicago Bulls announcer hadn't discovered that obscure Alan Parsons project song, um, which I believe was some sort of hovercraft, um, but if, <laughs> if they hadn't if they hadn't discovered that song that became the intro for the Chicago Bulls, oh, Eye in the Sky, that yeah, was the yeah. Name of the song. If it wasn't for that one, then right now probably would have been like the sports anthem of the night. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Oh, that's um, funny. Uh, thought- <laughs> Chris, did you have thoughts on like the last three Hagar albums? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, we all seem to be on the same page. I mean, it's a steep drop off after that. I think, you know, OU812, I mean, first of all, this is where we kind of get into these dumb titles. I mean, I know that was supposed <laughs> to be a shot at, you know, not so clever shot at David Lee Roth. I'm not even Eat sure I get that. Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm not even sure I get the joke. It's just like, so now they, you know, it's like you have an album that's like 30 plus years old and like the title doesn't make any sense because it was a joke at the time that wasn't even that good. So it's just like, just give it a real name, whatever. But um, kind of a mixed bag, decent songs on there. Ironically enough, as much as I hate for Lawful Carnal Knowledge, it actually has my favorite Hagar era Van Halen song, which is uh, uh, Runaround. Mm-hmm. I love that song. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that song. I like Pound Cake too. Um, I hate, hate, hate right now. Um, <laughs> it will always be a commercial jingle to me. And that that song and the fact that, that song was <laughs> a fucking Pepsi commercial, it kind of epitomizes the Hagar era for me because I'm just like, come on, Eddie. I mean, really? It's like, you know, you needed that much more money that you got to sell out your song to be a commercial jingle. Especially so, for fucking Pepsi. Are you kidding Pepsi, me? I know. Dude, so seriously. I, so I think I will never forgive that and be able to look at that song objectively. I mean, it's just like I, you know, I'm listening to the album. As soon as I hear the, the tinkling piano intro, I'm like, nope, skip. And it's just like, <laughs> I, I can't do it. But I think the thing that, and, and, you know, it didn't, at the time, it didn't bother me because I was, you know, a kid then. But I look back at it now. I mean, you know, Sammy Hagar, when they made this album, he's in his early 40s. These guys are all late 30s. First of all, they released an album called Fuck, which is like, really? <laughs> and every other song on that album is some embarrassing <laughs> song about like how Sammy Hagar wants to have sex. And it's just like, dude, really? And you know, so I, you know, I try to listen to it as an adult. And I can't. And I'm like, how are, <laughs> how, are, how are 48, 40 year old guys writing this shit? And I think the big irony of it is like, you know, Sammy Hagar was supposed to be, you know, the you know, more refined, mature. Right. And, and, and yet the songs on the album are dumber than anything David Lee Roth ever wrote. And David Lee Roth wrote a song about wanting to fuck the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's just like, you know, like one song, like Pound Cake, okay, I'll give you that. One song about sex. But like five? I mean, really, Sammy Hagar? This is what, like, you're, like, you're going through the songbook and this is what you're coming up with? So it's, and, you know, and I don't think the musicianship in terms of, you know, measuring it against Van Halen's previous albums is really great. I, I don't think there's a lot of memorable guitar parts on that album that really stand out to me. I mean, I like Run Around. I think that's a good song. Uh, but other than that, I don't think there's like a lot of solid riffs. Um, by the time you get the balance, balance is kind of a mixed bag. But I mean, I'm, I'm checked out with this with this version of the band at this point. So I mean, that that album just kind of feels blah to me. I mean, I, I think they definitely peak with 5150. And like I said before, it was just a steep, steep drop off after that. have to temper any love I have for foreign love for carnal knowledge because it was the first album I owned. So it still has that going for it. I mean, I like, again, the, the piano dork in me likes right now, just um, not, not mainly because of that tinkly intro, but because of the, the more, the more forward chords and stuff that can, that comes with it uh, that comes after it. But, uh, but yeah, it got, it did get to the point where even I had to stop listening to it at, at, at some point. Although I always, I always admire the fact that they were able to pull off a very high selling album in the very early nineties when, alternative as they called it um was taking over the landscape um and OU812 and Balance are albums that I can pick off a couple of songs from each that I might enjoy but they're they're again yeah they're they're kind of I mean 95 was a weird weird year in music anyway but but OU812 for instance has um when it's love, which is like the closest I think they get to like soft rock, you know, it's, and, and it, it, but it's like, it's it, but for that genre, it actually works really well, but it's not a song I'm going to keep coming back to. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a song I would very likely end up hearing at the grocery store these days, you know, that, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, and I, I, I swear, I, I, I didn't think I was going to be the one to quote Cliff Poncier here, but this is a lot of this is beer and lifestyle music. And <laughs> it's like, I was like, it's on the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, but, but really it is, it's just, but, but with, with, with fuck, it's like, I know they're trying to go back to, because they went, they went a lot lighter with OU812 and they get back to this, something that's a little harder and you know, uh, there's a couple of songs on that that I will listen to. Um, I do, I do like Pound Cake. Uh, maybe not necessarily for the lyrics, just to, just for the the tune itself. And I and I did like Top of the World as a closer in the same way that I, that I like Dreams mm-hmm. on Fifty One Fifty. And it and to to me they kind of match up really well. But yeah, but you're right. By the time you get the balance, I have it, and I think I bought it more out of obligation than I bought out of. Um, Actually, me too. Yeah, I'll agree with it's, that. It's like you know, this new Van Halen album, I might as well get it. And not enough has a pretty decent piano part, but it, it the whole album feels off. Although I will give a shout out to Humans Being off the Twister soundtrack. I always thought that was a pretty pretty good song, and they didn't do a lot of soundtrack songs. And um, you know, if that's one of the la- that and they have a another like an instrumental song in that soundtrack, and those are the last two of the the Hagar era. And for for what it's worth, they're better than anything that was on balance for me i'd rather listen to humans being more than like um what the hell is the name of that song i can't stop loving you which <laughs> i'm just like oh god that sounds like that sounds like a 
that sounds like something out of a romantic comedy or something like that. Not enough. Yeah, I, I have I have a fondness for that song. I really like that. I don't like. I don't know why it has like this weird minute and a half long intro that just feels mm-hmm. very discordant and not part of the song. I don't know why that wasn't just lopped off. Well, by the um, way, a lot of a lot of those songs, like the, that whole album, is full of like five, six, seven minute songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, but like how it starts off is just this soft piano ballad. I really, really like it. And then the rest of the band comes in. I like not enough. I'll go to bat for that one. But yeah, like I, I think like by 1995, when I heard that out and I heard Can't Stop Loving You, it seemed like what I, what I was kind of comparing it to was Aerosmith at that time. But the mm-hmm. difference was Aerosmith. I knew had had their peak and then cratered along like at some point. And then they were kind of like resurgent and like coming back mm-hmm. with, you know, their, their albums with um, pump and get a grip pump. and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and I was more of a fan of them at the time. Whereas this felt like the, uh, the, the band is like sliding down, like not, not we're like, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're approaching that crater. So I just, yeah, didn't, didn't have as much love for this one. So Omar, your thoughts on these, these other three Hagar albums. Everyone's making really good points that I essentially fundamentally agree with. I I would say that each of these eras fundamentally reflects the sensibilities of the lead singer, right? And I think, look, I think Sammy Hagar is probably a very, he seems like a very nice guy. Every time I've ever seen him in an interview, he has sounded generally inoffensive, banal. He says like anodyne things that like, he just, he's not... He's just not a very memorable person. Um, I also don't think on a fundamental level, he's very bright. Like, I don't mean he's like excessively dumb, but I think he's like an extremely ordinary person with an extremely ordinary sensibility. Um, So I think that that is sort of reflected in his worldview and his worldview is reflected in his songwriting. So again, everything in life is a trade-off. So you don't have to deal with like the sort of uh, creative tension and lack of discipline and like shameless preening and like like campiness and detached irony uh, and 100% revved up all the time, egocentric obnoxion that is Roth. But like, if you make that trade, you're, you get Sammy Hagar. And I don't think Sammy Hagar is like uttered like a memorable sentiment in like over 70 years of being alive. And that's his songwriting. And I think, you know, I just frankly don't think Oh, you ain't one too, or carnal knowledge or balance are good albums. I think the material on those albums ranges from inoffensive to embarrassing. And I think that, you know, balance is very interesting because I think one of you mentioned it like balance is just, I, I bought it out of a sense of obligation, but like, it just kind of feels like out of its time. Like, like 1995 was a very weird year. Uh, but like balance seemed like very, very anachronistic, even for like a grab bag of a year, like 1995. There's not a single like song on any of those three albums other than, you know, right now is for sentimental reasons. Although I would agree with Chris, it's, 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 it's very overrated. Um, you know, we were talking about balance and there is a, the the very first single on it was the third track, uh, a song called don't tell me what love can do. And it is, I swear to God, a reaction to Kurt Cobain's suicide. And it is the most cringe-inducing, like, single I've heard from, like, a a four-piece band, like, in my adult life. It's very bad. So in the same way that I think, like, there was a definitive shelf life with David Lee Roth because of what he brought to bear 
Um, I think that, you know, 5150 was the high water mark, but I think the like Sammy Hagar just kind of slowly drained any kind of creative sensibility from the band. I think a lot of Eddie's songwriting fed off of whatever lead singer he was like working with at any given time. And I just don't view Sammy Hagar as a compelling presence, like from a lyrical standpoint or from a music standpoint, post 5150. The trade-off is higher floor than Roth because you get professionalism, sheen, polish, and like definitively better quality vocals. But like you get a much lower ceiling because like he, he, he'll sing songs about like having sex or like going to Amsterdam and smoking pot. Um, again, I think Sammy Hagar is like a very nice guy, probably much more pleasant and relaxing to spend time with than Roth. But I think they're definitely just kind of going through the motions in those last three albums. And it shows. And I think by the time uh, he left in 1996, it was just kind of like a mercy killing. I would not have been interested in a subsequent post-balance Sammy Hagar record. Um, I, I just view it as like a very, very disappointing era. And I think that, you know, for, in proportion to Eddie Van Halen's talent, his God-given talent, like when you factor in that, like the Sammy Hagar stuff, I still feel like when you look at the arc of his career, he left, a, Eddie Van Halen left a lot on the table when he died. And part of that is a testament to just how talented he was. I don't think other than Jimi Hendrix, there was a better, or maybe Eric Clapton, there was a better guitarist on earth. But I think also a lot of it has to do with the fact that like a lot of his potentially peak years were spent with someone who wasn't a particularly inspiring songwriter, collaborator, or creative partner. Throw in his drug use and, you know, penchant for drama. And I just, yeah, he just kind of left a lot on the field. And that's very disappointing. And I think those last three albums epitomize that. Speaking of the the drama and the circus that ensued after Sammy Hagar left, um, I, I do have the distinct memory. Neil, I think I was with you. I don't know what we were doing, but I think we were together watching an MTV award show. <laughs> they, they announced Van Halen oh and oh, three September two thousand four. No, 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 no ninety six. No, no. Ninety six. Oh, yeah. Oh, you saw. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. When when David Lee Roth came back with the band, the the it was the original four lineup for the first time, and they were just presenting something. But but he came back and he was his mouth was again. He looked high as fuck. Um, Wait, no, no, no. That's two thousand four. That's no, 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 no. This was this was ninety six. Yeah, no. This was no, no. Because he he they came back and they announced that like he he said something to the effect of they said it would never happen, and this was their big coming out. They were announcing that Hagar had left and David Lee Roth was coming back. Oh, right. That was and lead then, up to the greatest hits album. <laughs> and then, and then nothing happened after that because they fell into their old habit. And they're like, so are you guys coming out with a new album? It's like, nope. He 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 quit, or we kicked him out of the band again. It's like we. Yeah. Yeah, got into a fight backstage. After yeah, they yeah, yeah. The no, that was that, that was yeah. To give you guys a to give you guys a really quick backstory on that. So apparently, the lead up to the Sammy Hagar exit, when Eddie was getting really disillusioned with Sammy and Sammy's lyrics and stuff, and even I think it came to a head during the recording songs for the like Tom said the Twister soundtrack. They mm-hmm. they did Human Beings. Sammy wrote lyrics to that song. Eddie rewrote them because he said Sammy was too cheesy at that point. So this is like continuation of the balance era where I think Eddie was like, Sammy just can't write. Like he's just, he's just way too over the top cheese ball now. So Eddie rewrote those lyrics. And then Sammy said he didn't want to do a soundtrack, wanted nothing to do with it. So the second song they contributed was an instrumental just Eddie and Alex did it. And anyway, so there was all this, like there was drama already brewing. 
And then they got together with David Lee Roth and said, hey, we're going to put together a Greatest Hits album. Let's write a couple new songs. And so I think they had, I want to say two, maybe probably two, Me Wise Magic and something else. Can't get this stuff no more. Yeah. Yeah. Can't get this stuff no more. So that MTV performance was supposed to be the crowning jewel of that. Like, hey, everybody, we're back. And for all intents and purposes, Eddie and Alex have both said that that night they remembered why they hated them. (laughs) That was that was the end of it. And you can just see it on their faces. Like if you if you go to YouTube and like find footage of that or whatever, he just he looks so high. His mouth is open. He just like oh, oh yeah, because didn't like Beck win an award and Eddie and like David Lee Roth was behind yeah. him making grinding yes. movements or something. Like yeah, he was just you, being a dick. Yeah, and you just see Eddie and Alex, and they're just like, why are we standing next to this guy <laughs> again? What did what did we just forget to do? So yeah. Um, my biggest problem with all of them, I, I think you guys all talk, we've saw, we said, we all agree that there was a gradual decline in musicianship and songwriting and stuff like that. My biggest issue was still the fact that the Eddie's guitar sound had changed. And at this point he was so, he was changing music contracts with different bands. He was like, first he had a guitar, a signature series with Ernie Ball, Music Man, and then with PV. And then he eventually got his own signature sound. But with each, like as a musician, I get the sense, like, as I I hear this guy just being completely unhappy with, you know, like everything, like they just never, I feel like the, the, even the songwriting kind of chased the, the tone that he was trying to chase. They just, they did for, for every bit of the early Van Halen sounds in the seventies that sounded like they were ahead of their time, the nineties Van Halen, I feel like they're behind the times. Mm-hmm. And I'm mean, like, it sounds very dated. I hate the sound of some of these albums and to its credit. And again, I'm going to disagree with a couple of you on this point. I recently went back and listened to balance just last week after Eddie died. I listened to balance from a songwriting standpoint. It's not as bad as I remember it being when it came out. And I think a lot of my impression of it was colored by the fact that at that point, my musical ear had changed. I was into Nirvana, the pumpkins, Pearl jam. You know, that was like my, the musical landscape had changed and that album sounded really dated. So I remember hating it when it came out, I listened to it last week and to its credit, the first couple of songs in a row, I think seven seal can't stop loving you. And don't tell me what love can do, which Omar hates. I thought those were okay songs. I think that Sammy, there's a reason Eddie started to rewrite his lyrics because Sammy at this point was just over the top cheese ball. Like Chris said with the album Four and Lawful Carnal Knowledge, it's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, I I agree with all that. But the only reason I mention this is because I just want to give credit to the fact that my adult ears as a listener listening to it again, I I hated that album when it came out. And now I listen to it and I'm like, it's not terrible. (laughs) If that makes sense. Alright, <laughs> that's the strongest endorsement for this one. Yeah, yeah, it's not terrible. <laughs> not
they recorded two more studio albums after that. Uh, 1998, they had Van Halen 3, now with Gary Sharone on vocals. And then their most recent one, which is almost a decade now, uh, A Different Kind of Truth in 2012, where David Lee Roth came back on vocals. But at that point, uh, they had ditched Michael Anthony and replaced him with Eddie's son, Wolf. I'll, I'll put it out there. I haven't listened to either of these albums. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I never had the curiosity at this point. It was, it was kind of like Van Halen was this, was of a certain time period. And I am happy with that. And I like that. It never, I never had any desire to chase them into more modern music at the time once I got there. So do you, does anybody have th- <laughs> like thoughts or can you speak to these albums? Well, first of all, Tom, uh, I appreciate your shout out to singles. That was, that was a nice, uh, nice callback. Um, second of all, I just want to say, I, I've listened to Van Halen 3. And by the way, that was kind of some ingenious album titling that they didn't have during the Hagar era. I was like, oh, wow, that worked out. And they went to two during when they had David, and now it's like the third version of the band. I've listened to it once. I have no comment about it. I will say that A Different Kind of Truth is a better album than it has any business being. And I do encourage I would agree with that that have not listened to it to give it a chance. It's not going to be in the conversation for best Van Halen album, but it is a solid album. And there are a handful of songs on there that are reminiscent of their creative peak where it's like, okay, there's a certain energy to it. I mean, with with David Lee Roth uh, back in the fold. And I will say lyrically, his songwriting, uh, you know, matured, which was was interesting. I mean, it's not a bunch of songs about partying and fucking and how he likes girls. And there's a, the standout tracks on there is a song called Big River, which is a great song. There's a song called um, Stay Frosty, which is my favorite from the album. And I recommend if you're going to listen to any part of the album, listen to that track. Hmm. It is an excellent, excellent song. It's so it's I mean, it kind of serves as you know in my mind like an epilogue to that era you know because obviously it kind of ended unceremoniously with David Lee Roth quitting you know in the uh, in the wake of their you know their big breakthrough but this kind of feels like you know like this they, this is them coming back and you know they're they're older it feels like you know this is a song or, or, or uh, an album by guys that are you know later in their careers. But it works. And yeah, like I said, I, I recommend you guys give it a listen if you haven't. It's it's solid. Chris, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you mentioned that because I agree with you. This album is better than I expected it to be. And maybe I had a really low bar by the time that this was coming out. But right. the thing to kind of put the icing on the cake to everything I've described about the previous albums, at this point, Eddie had now settled into his EVH series of guitars, which he had now had his custom line, custom design, the Wolfgang model at, named after his son was the was the guitar that he was playing. And he rediscovered that brown sound. And that was the first time in a long time he'd gone back to a dirtier grungy distortion pedal kind of thing and the irony is that the lead tr- the lead single off the album tattoo i hate i think that song's terrible but the next couple songs off it she's the woman you and your blues Bullethead. like there's chris you're right there's a lot of good tracks on there that are much better than i expected them to be so if this was the the i mean now that obviously Eddie's past. This is the last thing they did the, the, you know, going back to David Lee Roth for a good final album. Chris, I think you're right. It's a good epilogue to their story. Yeah. Just the only thought I have is just trying to think of, cause I'd never listened to either. And, and you're actually selling me in the album. So I might have to look it up uh, tomorrow, but um, with, with Van Halen three, I do 
remember seeing the video for I think it was without you. The the one Gary Strone video where it, yeah. it it looked like them trying to ape every other video from the era. And and I think that's what immediately turned me off to this. Did it have to do with Eddie wearing a stocking cap with like yes, a panda on yes. it? Yes. And, and part according <laughs> like all the hot topics kids. Yeah. And according to the Wikipedia page, part of it was shot in the ice hotel in Sweden. And I'm just like, and I remember seeing it. I remember the, some distinct images of Gary Sharon and they were, they, they were dressed the, the dress and everything. And I realize you evolve with the times and everything, but at the same time, it just, I just remember it, it not fitting. And, and to hear that the, the very, very final album is, is a lot better in terms of everything. Yeah, it's better. It makes me feel, it makes me feel better because I hated the fact that that was the sort of like, you know, last crappy afterthought album that you have to include in the band's discography, discography, which is technically there, but like, really, you know, so I'm, 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 interested in, in going back and listening. Yeah, it beats, it's it's definitely not them going out on a whimper, which I guess at this point is, you know, that's a positive. Like it was like, like Chris said, I, I completely agree. It's a much better album than I expected it to be and better than it should be. But it was a good closing chapter. If I, I mean, considering what led up to it, it was much better than anything they'd done recently. I would echo Neil and Chris quite a bit. Um, really quick with regard to three, um, I listened to it, I think, twice. I think it's very forgettable. I feel bad because I think Gary Sharon was kind of set up to fail a little bit. He was not getting vintage Eddie Van Halen. He was not getting a particularly focused Eddie Van Halen. Um, I think he, and it, but his style was just, it just didn't really mesh with them. I think vocally he was very proficient in this, in the tradition of Sammy Hagar, but I, I think his, his sensibility was a little bit of, uh, was clashing a little bit. And I think Eddie was starting to undergo the, the, the reach the peak of a lot of his physical problems, particularly a wonky hip. And yep, um, yep. I think he was getting diagnosed with um, his first round of oral cancer right around the time Sharon left, you know, a year or two after they released three, they did a quick tour of Australia. It was largely forgotten. You know, Sharon's tenure lasted three years. And yeah, I always just ended up feeling bad for the guy because he's been nothing but classy about them. Uh, and yeah, I think maybe he did. He, he just wasn't getting them at their best, but it's not a very good album. Um, a different tr- kind of truth is good. Uh, mm-hmm. I would echo heartily mm-hmm. what Neil and Chris said, and but I would add to it just there just needs to be a little context. It's not like Roth showed up in like 2012 and they made that record just on a lark. No, no, like Roth came back in 2007 and they hit the road. And their plan always was to we're going to hit the road and we're going to sit down and we're going to work on an album. Um, and so I think one of the reasons that a different kind of truth works, and I would echo like the, the I actually like Tattoo, but I think She's the Woman is great. I yeah, think me too. Chinatown is really good. I love Stay Frosty. Um, I think so. So they they started from a very solid uh, songwriting foundation because a lot of these were just unfinished demos from the 1970s. I think half the songs were, I think five of them, six of them, and then another like six or seven were like wholly original. So mm-hmm. these had a lot of time to breathe. And these guys had a lot of time to mesh their styles together because by the time they started recording this album, they had been back together on and off for four years. Like Roth comes back in 2007. They go out on tour for the first time. Am I the only one that has seen them in concert? Is anyone else? I have not. Okay. So I saw them in 2008 and it was like a very defining moment for me. And it was great. And like, I love the narrative of Roth coming back. And the reason this album works is because I think they just sort of realized 
each other's limitations and they could they could live with each other. So I was fascinated by the relationship between David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen these last like 15 years when they were together because, you know, they recognized each other's limitations and just kind of worked within them and realized that like, we don't actually have to love each other. There was, you know, you guys were bringing up Bulls analogies. So like my own sports analogy to this is, I remember like how adored LeBron James was in Cleveland. And then when he left, like the Cleveland Cavaliers owner completely trashed him, like wrote a public letter about what a piece of shit he was for deserting them. Uh, and it was just, it seemed like bridge burned forever. And then like four years later, when LeBron comes back, it's a very professional, very like, Hey, we don't like each other, but we have a goal and we're going to deal with it. And we're going to work on, you know, our understanding of each other's limitations and it'll be completely professional and that'll be fine. And it was, it, it worked. And I think Roth and, and Van Halen worked from 2007 to like, you know, to, to when Eddie passed away because they just stayed away from each other when they had to, but they realized like they were their own best selves creatively when they were with each other. And that, that really showed live. Like, and by the time, you know, David Lee Roth is back, like his limitations as a singer had been completely exposed by this point. And he's, you know, he's compensating with his like gyrating bullshit and his like, you know, he's, he'll take the microphone stand and he'll treat it like he's a, um, he's a Japanese samurai and like just a bunch of ridiculous stuff. Whereas I think 20 years ago, Eddie Van Halen would have just shaken with anger and like walked off the stage. At this point, it's just like he rolls his eyes and he just like goes with it. And I, I think a different kind of truth works because they were just sort of, they had worked around their issues with each other. And even in working through their issues with each other and reaching kind of like a peaceful detente, you still recognize that these are guys who are never naturally going to be like very close. In one of the last major interviews he gave, I think I referenced this earlier with Chuck Klosterman of Billboard, um, they were asking Eddie about his relationship with Roth. And by this point, they've been back together for, for eight years. They had done this album, which was a success. Um, they had gone on three world tours and Eddie was just like, yeah, he does not want to be my friend. We have absolutely nothing in common, but we are better together than we are apart. And it took a lot of time to figure that out. And I actually think the older I get, that's the ideal professional collaboration. None of this we're brothers bullshit. Like give each other space, understand how each of you can compensate for the other one. And I, I don't know, I, I just think there's something really like profound and like, and like wonderful in like the spirit of that collaboration. I think that's part of why you know, a different kind of truth is actually quite good. Um, and, and I think that they were able to go out on that note with that album, but also with three pretty solid tours where Eddie was able to showcase a singular talent, where Roth was able to do Roth things um, and give the people what they were paying for um, was, I, I don't know, I, I don't look at the end of that band other than the tragic circumstances around Eddie's passing. I don't look at the end of that band as something to be embarrassed about at all. I think that they really like like kept their stuff together the last like eight years, like when David Lee Roth came back. Um, and they really went out, if not at a peak or even at one of their highest notes on a not embarrassing at all and totally solid note. Um, and I'm really, I'm profoundly grateful to, for that. And I'm profoundly grateful that I was lucky enough to see them in concert. I saw a 2015 interview with David Lee Roth and he said almost the exact same thing, which was, he said, he said some of the performances like they did, I think they closed the, that a different kind of truth tour at the Hollywood bowl. They did three shows in a row at the Hollywood bowl. And I kick myself now for not having gone, but he said that those were some of the best performances of their entire career. And he said afterwards, 
so somebody asked him, like, hey, you guys going to go out to dinner and celebrate the end of the tour or something? He goes, not a chance. I don't want to have anything to do with these fucking guys off stage. But they were the best performances of it. So it's like, yeah, I think at that point they had matured to the point where, like, we don't even like each other. But God, when it's good, we make magic. Stay Woo! Look out! Stay frosty now. Use my hand, I won't look. Uh-oh! Woo! Can I make one last observation about Gary Sharon? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God somebody wants to. Well, you know, we got. I mean, we got to give the guys due because I think yeah, Omar. Please. I mean, in fairness, I, I agree with Omar. I feel bad for Gary Sharon. Like, you know, he's a fine singer, and he was. It does feel like he was maybe set up to fail. But I think that's kind of. If you look at the photos, like the, the promo photos of the time when he joined the band. I think this is this is very emblematic of like his position at the time. And it's hilarious because you know he's got like really dark hair. And during the time, he's got bleach blonde hair, like when he joined Van Halen. And so, you, <laughs> so in my mind, I picture a conversation he had with the band where they're explaining to him that they have a certain continuity yeah. with their lead singers and you they gotta have be blonde. blonde. And they hand him a bottle of bleach and send him into the bathroom. And he's like, all right. <laughs> and then he, he goes in there. Oh, my God. He bleaches his hair. And he comes out. And he takes the photos. And, and it's like, he doesn't seem that happy about it. But he's like, you know what? All right. That's fine. And and now he's going to go down in history as, you know, the, the most forgettable singer of Van Halen. And it's kind of sad. I feel bad for the guy. Now that now that we talk about, it, I wonder if that's why Steve Perry actually turned it down. What if he's like, I'm not bleaching my hair? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> here, like the entire time that Neil was, he, he brought up uh, Eddie's substance abuse problems, which by ninety five, ninety six, he was newly sober. But uh, you know, it made me think of, and I'm going to use the sports analogy, but you see, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with baseball, and I'm going to go with the Mets because. You know, it's me. Um, there's like a Dwight Gooden Errol oh, strawberryness oh. to this. <laughs> Gooden, especially Gooden, had Gooden had one of the best. Wait, the '84 Mets, really? That's where you're going, Neil? Okay. <laughs> no, go, go. That's fine. I need to cling to something. I've been rooting for this shitty <laughs> team for almost for 35 fucking years. <laughs> Let me uh. have. But no, Gooden had a Gooden's fastball when he when he came out. It's this it's this thing that like there was no way this guy was ever going to um, maintain this over his career. And he and he had his he has, his these problems. If you ever watched that ESPN thirty for thirty, it's really really sad. But you I know, eighty six by the way, not eighty four. Yeah, I know it's yeah yeah. Uh, but but you know, like his eventually decline. You you're talking about that how how substance abuse really did play into how you know he lost something in his playing and stuff yeah and uh you know there's you know just just to just to jump in with my cheesy sports metaphor i mean there's something apt to that i mean you know you have somebody who comes out who's really a kid and he's just a virtuoso like a complete prodigy with this thing and then you know and and continues and continues but like you know can't maintain that that level for various reasons and things change and yes there's a little bit of maturity there but you're right and i think you guys are right about how the Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, collaboration um, with other people affected his style, and um, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. you you see that in a lot of you see that in a lot of artists, though you see that in a lot of um, you know uh, in, in other media as well. 
Well, also from I, I I keep hearing stories that are kind of surprising that I didn't quite expect to go down this rabbit hole as, during my research. But it sounds like to a certain extent, Eddie's substance abuse led him to a lot of paranoias, which are mm-hmm. things that you didn't like normally don't get talked about and stuff. You know, we just hear about like artists overdosing and dying and whatnot eddie eddie kind of took like this this really dark turn towards thinking everybody was out to get him sammy was like trying to be become david lee like things that weren't necessarily true but eddie started to feel like he was going to lose control of the band again and he finally got it because of years of david lee ross bullying and whatnot so then he started to kind of emotionally and personally abuse sammy to try and make sure that he still had control of the band and you know alex unfortunately was caught in the middle of a situation where he's like, I got to defend my brother, no matter what, you know, like Ryan would do to me, no matter what. So, so, but you know, there was like, when the truth is confront themselves and I know specifically about like the, after they did, remember they did a greatest hits double album called the best of both worlds. And mm-hmm. they moved together. Yeah. 2004. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 That was the first time they'd gotten together back with Sammy again. And yep. the first time they got back in a room with Sammy in 2004 and they did some shows and they did some stuff. And the, from, from everything that I found out, I guess that was when Eddie's alcoholism and, and, and this is after he recovered already. He was, he recovered from throat cancer or tongue mm-hmm. cancer, tongue mm-hmm. cancer. Um, and he had fallen off the wagon bad and he was really, really, then he just became an abuser of Sammy and, and was, and of course, Sammy at the same time, you know, I mean, I've heard both sides of the coin. Sammy was promoting his own liquor. And Eddie's an alcoholic trying to stay sober. So, you know, it's it, it's tough to be on that kind of tour from all these things like Sammy was just or Eddie. Eddie was just kind of down this really, really dark. Like Sammy said that this was the darkest period of his, of his professional career. And he said that they got to a point where Sammy was backstage ready to go on stage. They weren't tour, They weren't taking the same buses. They weren't taking the same planes. And Sammy never knew if they were going to play that night until 30 seconds before showtime. He could hear Eddie's guitar through the PA system, knowing that he was there and ready to play. That's how bad it had gotten. And he said that, you know, by the end of that tour, he goes, I thought Eddie was a walking. He looked like Mick Mars from Motley Crue. He said he was hunched over. He had lost teeth. He was he looked like he was skinny as a rail. He looked like he was the walking embodiment of death at that point, just as an alcoholic. You know, the other way Eddie behaved on that tour that just like was completely unconscionable. And I, I agree that that tour was in many ways, and that double uh, Greatest Fits album was a pivot, big pivot point. Because honestly, up to that point for me, it was just kind of like, you know, growing up uh, in the Van Hagar era, I always assumed that like, oh, David Lee Roth, he's the worst. He had to leave, he was toxic. And then like when Sammy left, I, you know, the narrative was just like, ah, Sammy's ego, like, yeah, you know, why right, can't he accommodate right. the, why can't he accommodate the band anymore? And that's what <laughs> happened in 96. And I was just like, God, David Lee Roth being a clown again. And then Gary Sharon came and went, and I was like, well, he's not talented enough to keep up with Eddie. And then when the Sammy Hagar incident happened, when, when the incidents happened on the tour, you know, and then when what happened with Michael Anthony on that tour, which was my hand to God, yeah. I cannot believe that this happened. Like, I know. They were plotting a way to jettison Michael Anthony for the longest time because the dim view they took of his talent, they thought he was very limited um, as a bass player, which is bananas. But yeah. like... I guess he had been estranged from the band members for the last three or four years since the end of the Van Halen three tour in 98. And they said, listen, we're doing a greatest hits tour. Uh, we're, we're doing a greatest hits album, another greatest hits album. We're doing a worldwide tour to promote it with Sammy. Here's the deal. You can be a part of it, 
but we're going to pay you less and you have to sign away all of your licensing rights right. with regard to the band and just walk away. Take yeah. less money for this tour and walk away. And yeah, like, almost like you're a man, session player. Yeah, exactly. And like that was the point. And after that, like he did it and he did not complain about it and he walked away. And that was the point when I was just like, you know, for 20 years, I was like, oh man, how can these people do be doing this stuff to Eddie? And then it's like, you have that parable of like, you wake up and like, you know, everyone you run into is the asshole. And then you suddenly realize, oh. It's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so like, it was this late reckoning and it was like so disappointing. But then to your point, Neil, when you realize all the demons that Eddie was battling with, um, beginning with early success and like commingling that with like substance abuse. I mean, like he had this, a tumultuous longtime marriage that fell apart to, you know, celebrity Valerie Bertinelli, like his, he was cocooned and his family was the only thing his brother and his son were like, like like a firewall Um, to the point where outsiders of the band were saying like, he will communicate with Alex. He will communicate with his son occasionally with his ex-wife. But other than that, it's like radio silence. And so you never knew where you stood with him. And so I, I just think that's another point in the, you know, he left stuff on the field for a whole lot of reasons, sure. many yeah. of which were under his control. And I just wish it could have turned out differently because um, someone that talented, someone with so much to give and such a, a collaborative spirit, like in his essence, like the fact that so much of it was just pissed away with like silly, stupid feuds about like nothing yeah. uh, just kind of hurts. Well, they even went so far as to remember during this time period with Sammy fallout too. their band manager at that point was Alex's brother-in-law, his wife's brother. So they they were further insulated by people that were just going to say, yes, Eddie, you're right all the time. At night I walk this stinking street past the crazies on my block and I see the same old faces and I hear that same old talk and I'm searching for the latest thing I break in this routine. Talking some new kicks, ones like you ain't never seen. This is home. This is Street. We've been talking about Eddie's demons and sort of the problems that they had in the later stages. Um, and it got, yeah, it occurred to me when you mentioned earlier, like how early it was when he was diagnosed, it was like 20 years ago that we first found out about his, his first cancer. And I think I, I think that was in my mind because when I heard that he had died, I I mean, it was, it was surprising and you never expect to hear that news, but I don't feel like I was like shocked or floored because it was just kind of like, yeah, he was sick. And oh, yeah, he was sick for a long time. And it, it, maybe if I had spent more time thinking about it, I would have thought I was surprised that he was he was still around because I hadn't heard from him. And, and it just, it was always there. And I, and I do want to kind of transition now before we close out into more of the sort of the positive view of his legacy and his place in rock and roll history. I mean, I, I I think for me, I mean, as for as long as I've known who the band was, it's it's just sort of been accepted, you know, just like popular knowledge that he is one of the all time greats. That that uh, like his guitar playing and and you know, you mentioned how he he may have peaked when he was seventeen and never got better than that, but it's still what he was able to do just on that first album is incredible. And when you see footage of him doing fifteen minute guitar solos. Uh, we we can go around the horn and like where do you put him in the pantheon of all time great rock and roll guitar players? Uh, uh, Chris, uh, for my, my money, there's three, and I mean I, I'd call it my Mount Rushmore, but I need a fourth one, and I'm not sure who that would be. Uh, it's him, 
it's Jimmy Page and it's Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and the reason I picked those three is, you know, I'm not a musician, so, you know, I don't get into the intricacies of the technique. For me, it's the idea that you can hear their guitar playing. You can hear a song by them and know it's them. Like yep. Eddie Van Halen yep. had a sound. Yep. Jimi Hendrix had a sound. Jimmy Page has a sound. You can identify it. Like, I know people talk about Eric Clapton. Uh, I never got that, but, you know, I'm not a musician, so, you know, maybe I'm missing something there. Maybe Slash is the fourth one on the Mount Rushmore. He kind of has a distinctive sound, but I think it'd be a bit of a distant fourth. And for my money, I think in terms of innovation and uniqueness of sound, Eddie Van Halen might be the greatest guitar player ever. I mean, what he did with a guitar is pretty impressive and like i said it's like it's so distinctive you always know when you're hearing a song that eddie van halen is playing guitar on like you, when you hear beat it it's a michael jackson song <laughs> when, that so- when that solo starts that's eddie van halen and it's unmistakable That's absolutely and, true. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just, I, I just don't think you can. And, and the thing is, I don't think anyone's ever going to do that again. I mean, like he was probably the last frontier in discovering new ways to squeeze new sounds out of the electric guitar. I don't think anyone's ever going to come along again and, and do that again. I don't, I don't think you can at this point. You know, I mean, Jimi Hendrix probably first did it, and you know, Jimmy Page with his, you know the violin bow and all the different experimental stuff he did. But, you know, then Eddie Van Halen came in with the finger tapping and just all the sounds he got out of that. I I just, I I think that was it. I think, you know, the, the, the guitar has been fully explored as an instrument and no one is ever going to be able to squeeze new sounds out of it the way Eddie Van Halen did. I would say Jack White from the White Stripes tries. I don't think he. Ha- I don't think he's anywhere near Eddie Van Halen's level. But I think he is someone who consistently tries to experiment and get new new sounds and new like orchestration out of such a simple instrument. Um, yeah, I, agree. I mean, I, I yeah, I'm a big Jack White fan, and I agree, I agree with that. But I, I I feel he's more of an experimenter, where mm-hmm. Eddie was more of a technician, mm-hmm. and you know, so a lot of he, stuff he does is more avant garde than yeah. you know what Eddie was doing. Because guys, I mean, the magic, guys, of- no, no offense, but considering Ryan's question, Jack White shouldn't even be in this conversation. Well, he just he made a parallel. He's got the gr- greatest Jack- rock guitarist of all no, time. I, I didn't say no, that. I just, no, no, no. Ryan, Ryan was making the point that Jack White was trying to imitate. Experiment. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I just don't feel like he should have invaded this conversation. I think he's also and, trying to come up with somebody who's like post Eddie Van Halen, like who right. has been, who we had. talked about David Caruso in this conversation. We're fine. <laughs> yeah. As but well, think- we should have. <laughs> who but, takes but, off their sunglasses like that? Yeah. But but I think uh, you know ultimately the magic of what Eddie did with the guitar is you know a lot of the stuff he did was wildly experimental, but it was also very accessible. Like when you listen to it, it, it didn't sound experimental. It didn't sound like some kind of crazy distorted like bullshit that only like a really hardcore guitar you know fanatic would understand that is actually good. It sounded like just completely accessible and almost obvious. Like how yeah, is it yeah. not being no, done? No, I remember before? I remember being a freshman in high school trying to learn eruption in my bedroom. That has a very different meaning out of context, but yeah. 
<laughs> Tom. Tom, Tom. And now we're talk- back to the Jeffrey Tubin situation. Um, <laughs> oh God, here it comes. Uh, no, actually, the, the 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 fact that he was so influential on so many other bands of his era and beyond is also can't go without. Even even the fact that he was influential for a bunch of really really shitty bands too. But it, but you know that there were that there were people who were always chasing him in that sense, and then you know then that they wanted to be him and you don't get that a lot with, I don't care. You know, granted my musical rock taste stops at some point where like, you know um, I aged out of MTV somewhere in my mid twenties. So anything from the last 10 or 15 years, you really can't take my word for it. Um, yeah. He's up there on Mount Rushmore. I, I have a bias toward queen. So I would put Brian may as my fourth on route. Um, I'm out Rushmore only because of that. When I hear Brian May, I can tell it's a Brian May guitar piece because of the distinct sound of his particular guitar. But he's like the kind of the fourth out of those out of those four. And I think Eddie's, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if he's if he's tied with the other three. I don't know if I could rank the other three because he's so he is so of he is the 80s guitar sound. And beyond that too. But like there's just there's so much of him in that decade and there's and and there's so much of like this this raw talent that that comes out of the that first um you know hit out of the gate with Van Halen, the first album that um yeah, I think it's almost a given that you would rank him up there. Um and it's it's like it's a it's a huge, huge loss. But Ryan, you're right. It was more sad than shocking. I think is, is the way I felt when I, when I heard it. Yeah, I would say that. And again, I feel like I've been a little bit of the Debbie Downer in this conversation, particularly talking about like the Van Hagar era. Um, what I would say, and I think part of that is just because I feel so strongly about Eddie Van Halen's exceptional talent. Uh, I think he's the most talented. I think he's the best, most proficient, most talented, purely talented rock guitarist of all time. I think he's also the most innovative rock guitarist of all time. If there is a Mount Rushmore, like he is, he is the most, he should be the most prominent one. And I would say that like Hendrix and Clapton and Jimmy Page belong up there too. But I think Eddie Van Halen is the best. And it is a tribute again to his immense talent that I don't quite think his, and as much of a Van Halen fan as I was growing up and as fondly as I think of the band, I consider myself a Van Halen fan, but it is a testament to Eddie's towering talent that I think from a body of work standpoint, he probably underachieved. Uh, and that hurts a little bit only because I, I just, I, I just think he had more to give. I think, you know, may, from a pure songwriting standpoint, I would not put him up there with like the Lennons and the McCartney's, but in terms of like the ability to like put out a consistent body of work that was reflective of like his very unique skill set. I think there was a lot more to go. And I think that that David Lee Roth era sort of encapsulated encapsulates it at its most exciting. It is a it was a huge loss when when he died. Um, But it just also for me underscored the fact that like other than that, you know, 2007 to 2015 period with Roth, he just wasn't doing much. And and I think it's a a shame for listeners. It's a shame for the audience. Um, But I think that early period hinted at, you know, his greatness. And I, I truly believe we only scratched the surface of like how excellent he was. I think he will, he will have influenced like generations of guitar players. And, and yeah, like it, it is, he is a towering, towering figure in popular music. 
Boy, we're getting down to it, aren't we? Um, you know, I'll, I'll come back in, in a few minutes right before we end and do like my final impression in the last, the, I'll, I'll address legacy later. But in terms of where, to answer your question about where he's in, in rock history, I've got him in number one. And for, for a number of reasons, number obviously he, he changed my musical landscape, changed the way that I felt about music and wanted, I picked up a guitar and I wanted to be a songwriter. And to this day, I'm pursuing a career in the music industry because of Eddie Van Halen. So there's a lot of that, but to be more specific about what, you know, why he's the greatest rock player of all time. Um, he didn't just change the way people played the guitar. He changed the entire music industry at that time. You know, prior to that, Jimi Hendrix, Chris, you mentioned him. Jimi Hendrix did something similar in terms of innovation, but I don't feel like Jimi Hendrix necessarily changed the entire landscape of the music industry. He was just kind of a one-off that people marveled at his talent. And I don't know if there were a whole lot of imitators that were spawned in the wake of Jimi Hendrix. Van Halen launched an entire decade of imitators wanting to be him. And, and Eddie kept doing it with, with each and every new album. And then on top of that, you know, the one thing that I hold him over a Jimi Hendrix or a Jimmy Page, as Chris said, the one thing I'll hold Eddie that, that makes him tower over the rest is because then even the people that lost interest in Van Halen as a band and thought that, oh, he started playing guitar or keyboards, he got soft, he got, he became an adult and stopped that part of the musician that's never satisfied. That's the, the child prodigy, the mad scientist that he was always trying to challenge himself and find something new to compete with kind of thing. You know, maybe at a certain point at, at a certain age, the guitar didn't interest him as much as it used to. And other things did, but Ryan, you touched on this before his piano playing improved exponentially. You know, mm -hmm. there was, there was, there was just something about all this. So when I take all that stuff into account to come full circle, um, based on all of those factors, he brought something brand new that doesn't sound like it was influenced by anything else out there. He completely invented something brand new. He wasn't influenced by anything. And, you know, for, for, selfish reasons as well as professional reasons i have him at number one yeah i do too um i've just been thinking what other great guitarists i could like put up there and everything and it's still just like well they're not they're not better than him they're not the you know the the mount rushmore level and yeah i also agree if he if he hadn't played guitar and if he hadn't had other distractions and, and things in his life, maybe we would, like, I, I don't know if it, it would have the same attention, but we could be talking about him as one of the great piano players or keyboardists of all time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe, I maybe want, he had I, that potential. Omar said this before. I agree. I actually totally agree with Omar that he left a lot on, uh, you know, left a lot in the tank, so to speak. I agree with that. And the comparison that I'll make is Slash from Guns N' Roses. Chris, you said that you might consider, like, he might be a distant fourth on your Mount Rushmore. Slash, I love as a guitar player and I love as a songwriter, but he's just a blues guitar player. Like he's not, he, he doesn't do anything all that inventive, so to speak, but I still absolutely love him. But what Slash has done since Guns N' Roses is every bit as, as good as, is some of his premier work with Guns N' Roses. Like this is the, that's the career that I wish Eddie Van Halen had. So yeah, going back to thing, I'm not even talking about like commercial, like viability or putting stuff, but he just slash did stuff like an Eddie yeah. Van Halen became Eddie Van Halen became like an almost Howard Hughes type figure. Like yeah, for the past yeah. two decades. Yeah. Yeah. And so to that, to that aspect, I, I, I agree with you. I think I, you know, there, what, what could have been, and I guess I'll leave it. Yeah. Go ahead. Ryan. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, just to the sort of 
the cast on that is their last, they had four albums over 20 years, you know, their last four studio albums. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, between, between, it was 14 years between Halen 3 and a different kind of truth that they could have been doing other stuff or that he could have been doing. Um, my, the, the last thing, just in terms of, him him as a, a guitar god a guitar hero guitar legend or whatever i mean when i think of eddie van halen i think of him on stage dripping with sweat you know launching into that so and holding his guitar up and his fingers just racing up and down the neck like the whole thing like the entire length of the guitar is part of this thing and his like each one of his fingers was like a sentient animal capable of its own thought and its own playing. Like if, as if each one of his fingers had its own pick attached to it (laughs) and could be doing all of these different things. Like you look at him doing that and it's like, he must have ginormous hands or he must have an extra finger that we can't see. Like this this shouldn't, this is really getting weird. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this will bring to like your final impressions, uh, recommendations. Um, we actually came back and, and mentioned it. Um, the the double disc, uh, best of both worlds. I, I mean, I, I'm usually loath to recommend greatest hits because I want to give people the full album experience, including the deep cuts. But if somebody wanted to really just do a, do a dive into Van Halen, I don't think there's much better than that double disc, best of both worlds. It gives you all of the singles and a lot of just great material from both the David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar eras. It's, it's pretty damn good. It's also got a few live tracks and like three original ones that they did with Sammy Hagar at that time that are mostly forgettable songs. But I, I think that's a great recommendations. But um, yeah, we'll go around. Omar, final impressions, final thoughts about Van Halen before we wrap it up. Sure. I mean, just a great touchstone um, like a band, like a great marker of of my adolescence you know just a great testament to technical proficiency and like wizardry and genius and all that kind of stuff uh also a testament to just soap opera and drama and like weird diva type behavior um and that's fine that's that's part of the legacy it is what it is um i would really put in a recommendation for listeners to you know who are less than super familiar with their output that first Van Halen album from 1978, Van Halen 2, 1984, 5150, um, and then 2012's A Different Kind of Truth, yeah, particularly yeah. Uh, as a coda. And and in terms of live albums, I know they did li- Right Here, Right Now, which one of you referenced. Um, I would put in a um, an endorsement for Tokyo Dome, I think it's called. Um, yeah, from a, 2015, a, right? Yeah, Wasn't it the it, most recent from, one with it, David? Yeah, that's right. So it, it came out in 2015, and it catalogs a 2012 tour of Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, got, right. So the, the three Van Halens, Alex, Edward, and Wolfgang, with David Lee Roth in vocals. It's really good, and like one of the, the really lovely things about David Lee Roth is he is still David Lee Roth, so he refuses to sing the Sammy Hagar song. Um, <laughs> but there, but but like the versions of like some of their most well-known like songs are really good. They're yeah. sharp. Like Roth vocals are not good, but like he compensates with energy, which I like. Um, and Edwards playing particularly on stuff like Eruption and like Dance the Night Away and Unchained. Like I would really, really check out that live album. It is a, you know, a document of a great band um, just kind of rediscovering its sound 
having a nice little coda that turned out to be like one for one of the last times. Um, yeah, a great band that provided me with a lot of great memories. Go listen to those albums and go listen to that, that live album and a different kind of truth. And some of the classic ones I mentioned, it's it, yeah, they're just a really wonderful band that I'm, I'm really happy that they were part of my adolescence. I mean, yeah, I I really don't have much to add beyond what uh, what Omar just said because that's those are the albums that I would recommend and um, and and I like your recommendation of the greatest hits album because if you're especially because I teach high school I spend my day around teenagers if I'm going to talk about a group like Van Halen I'd be like you know I would put the greatest hits album in front of them and then and then if they're interested be like you know dig a little deeper. And I was as you guys were oh, talking. Billy Eilish loves this band. Nah. <laughs> well, and and the funny thing is, is that a lot of them might be familiar with Eruption and some of the other tracks because there's always some kid on YouTube who's playing it, and it goes a little bit viral every once in a while. So, um, uh, and and actually, I when they when he did pass away, I did AP. I was teaching my AP English class the next day, and I was like, basically, I didn't play any, but I did tell them to you know go go look up Van Halen. As you were talking, I remembered, I meant to bring this up earlier. He scored a film in the mid eighties called the wildlife. It's by uh, Cameron Crowe wrote it. And I, it's been a very, very long time. So I don't know if the score is any good, but it was one of the reasons that that movie's never been available on DVD because of the rights to the music. Oh, I remember um, hearing about that. You can find it on YouTube. I just quickly searched for it on YouTube and it's a really deep cut here. But, um, but yeah, no, I would, I would, I would look through the, the discography, like starting with the greatest hits and then finding if you're, if you're completely, completely new Van Halen, finding what you like digging deeper there and then and then moving moving outward from there but i would i would the, the ones to listen all the way through for me would be like yeah van halen one fifty one fifty eighty four, and um you know i think that's about it and then there's a few tracks on each album that i really like but yeah it's just um and and really thank you for having me on here this was this was a lot of fun and it was it's great to talk about just a band that's just absolutely amazing and an absolutely and and, a, and an artist who is just you know epitomizes something that a, a lot of a lot of people really hope to achieve in terms of his talent yeah i think uh you know in terms of his legacy i mean you know his his place in the rock and roll pantheon is is it's just unquestioned i mean there's just you know whether or not you put him at the top of the list for guitar players he's in the conversation and his impact on rock and roll, I mean, it's, 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 you know, for as long as rock and roll exists, you know, as a musical genre, as an art form, his name will be a part of that. And, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, these guys are like recommending albums, to listen to and everything and agree with the choices. But I would recommend uh, for any listeners that are, you know, maybe coming to Van Halen for the first time is especially for the David Lee Roth era. There's a visual component to it, too. And I think a great place to start is to watch the videos from 1984. Watch Jump, mm-hmm. watch Panama, watch Hot for Teacher. And you get you get the full three-dimensional feel of what Van Halen was as a band at their peak. Yeah. And, you know, we touched on this a little bit with Hot for Teacher. And by the way, I'm a little surprised. There's, there's uh, I love Hot for Teacher. You guys all seem to be kind of down on them a little bit. Oh, I love it. I, I did not. Okay. It. Okay, well, fair enough. I, I, felt, I felt like there were some detractors. Uh, yeah, it's the young guys. It's the I young know, guys. It's not so much you didn't like it. It was just that <laughs> it, it, it got 
I haven't been able to listen to it because it's just I, I heard it too many times. Chris, <laughs> yeah, I, Chris I think the I think the kids just don't get it. <laughs> I know, you know, it's funny when you were saying that you were rediscovering balance after hating it. When you were saying you were rediscovering balance after initially hating it, I was like, "Yeah, you like it now because you're in the demographic it was targeting." Bit. <laughs> oh, 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 shots fired across the bow. <laughs> okay, all right, let's let's let's, let's cool okay. down. Okay, just remember, right. just remember, Omar already gave his closing comments. I haven't yet. This is true. <laughs> this true. is true. Well, Ryan's going to edit all this out anyway, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you can't go wrong with the jump video, with the Panama video. They're basically, you know, performance videos. Panama being like concert footage, and they're they're fantastic in terms of of, of you know encompassing everything that Van Halen was about as a band at that time. Hot for Teacher, great video, little tough to watch as an adult with hindsight, especially when you get to the part where ten year olds are cheering for a grown woman to take her clothes off. But it's it's not the most PC video, but it's still a fun video that captures kind of a sensibility of what the band was. And, you know, and arguably, I mean, you know, Eddie Van Halen strolling through the fucking tables that are in the library and just crushing that solo. I mean, that's, that's vintage Eddie Van Halen. I mean, it's just so effortless. He's got that, you know, that Eddie Van Halen smile, you know, something we didn't really talk about, like, you know, that, that offset, like kind of that cheesy smoldering bullshit thing that, that David Lee Roth is always trying to do. And then right behind him is Eddie Van Halen in a tiger striped, you know, jacket, open chested and just grinning like a, like a kid. You really get that, you know, it's mainline that kind of Eddie Van Halen in those videos. So I would, I would hardly recommend that. Chris, you remember we used to play the action figure game where we would like pick out the definitive iconic character that like you just described exactly. Like if somebody was going to do an action figure of Eddie Van Halen, it would be, either the jump video or hot for teacher. Like that would be say, the would, iconic Eddie Van Halen. Oh, I would say jump video all the way. You got, yeah. you got the tiger stripe jacket yep. open, the long silk scarf and the, the patchy jeans and the patchy yeah. jeans. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Nice. I love the music for hot for teacher. It's, it's the lyrics, the vocals. Like if somebody had just rewritten it hot for insurance adjuster or something like that, you know, any other occupation. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Neil, <laughs> as if for some reason you got me thinking about this year's sexy whistleblower costume. <laughs> to kind of to kind of end where we're coming from, I, I, you know, the one thing we haven't really touched on, and I'll try to do this quickly, but this this death really actually did impact me, and and. It, a surprising way and i want to just mention really quick you know that for some weird reason i had rediscovered van halen prior to his death earlier in the pandemic because i got into this habit being during lockdown ryan and chris you guys know this i started to like rebuild my own guitars and i started to kind of emulate what eddie did with his early career with the frankenstat which was like trying to piece together the perfect guitar based on elements that you want you know, a Gibson guitar pickup, a humbucker, but in a Fender Strat body and doing things like this. So long story short, I kind of got into this habit of starting to do this stuff to kind of cultivate my own sound. And that led to the discussion of, you know, somebody mentioned that's like what Eddie Van Halen does. And I started listening to Van Halen again. And I decided, you know, at some point I want to, I want to have a signature Eddie Van Halen guitar. And you guys, Ryan and Chris, you know, that Alexia bought me the Prince purple cloud or purple rain cloud guitar. Mm -hmm. And, that you know i which by the way i love but the the next step she said something like well at some point i'll have to get you the eddie van halen guitar and my response to that was honestly no i don't want you to buy that for me because that's something i want to build 
I think it would mean more to me if I build it myself and construct it and pay it just like he did. So that was just kind of a segue, a side note. It was weird that I started to rediscover my love for Van Halen months ago before all this happened. Now, real quick, I just want to, like, since Omar, you and I have kind of talked a little bit about, you know, this, you know, the dark side of Eddie over the last handful of years through to based on drug addiction and alcoholism and paranoia and all these other things that kind of jaded him and changed him. I, I just want to, you know, mention I, it brings it brings me great joy and pride to announce to the listening public that right towards the end, Eddie did make amends with Michael Anthony and Sammy Hagar. He has been in touch with both of them. He has reached out to them. And Sammy even just mentioned earlier this week that he finally picked up the phone when he knew that Eddie was getting really like his cancer was getting bad. And he picked up the phone after decades and called Eddie and said he was trembling when he figured out what he was going to say. And he was like, hey, Ed, it's Sammy. And Eddie's response was, what the fuck took you so long? And they both just started laughing. And I thought that that I thought that that was just an amazing I mean, this is we're talking about a guy that knows he's dying. You know, it's like you're like there's something about that that's so touching and so poignant. And same thing. Michael Anthony said that all beefs were squashed. You know, it was all it was all in hindsight. And Sammy has said, you know. There's there's something, you know, the music that they made in the 11 years that they were together, you know, will live on forever and they'll never forget those memories. So all of that stuff, it's like a nice footnote to me because I wouldn't want any of this story to end with Eddie being this miserable, old, hateful person that held grudges. I wouldn't want that. And so I'm glad that that's kind of the way that these stories are ending. Now, lastly, for me personally, um, Eddie's a lot like, you know, my, my heroes in life, and some of you guys know this stuff, my heroes are Michael Jordan, Prince, those type of people that they're, they're almost psychotically ambitious and talented to the point where the people closest to them have trouble being around them. And this is a common theme about a lot of my heroes. It's weird, but like, you know, the, the Eddie Van Halen, you know, I've heard stories about part of the reason that drove Sammy out of the band in 96 was Eddie calling him at 4am on father's day saying, Hey, I need you to come over and record vocals. I, I just laid down the track and Sammy's like, I'm married. I have kids. Like what? No, I'm not coming over right now. And that pissed Eddie off because he didn't understand how other people could have outside interests. That type of stuff goes par for the course. I've learned over, over my life that the, the perfectionists at their craft that are the best at what they do with ungodly talent, hold other people up to an insanely high bar that other people can't match. And Prince did it. Michael Jordan did it. Eddie Van Halen did it. So you can't have the good without the bad, I guess. There, there is a yin and yang where would, you know, would Michael Jordan be as good as he was if he was a nicer person? Probably not. And I think that there's a lot of this in Eddie Van Halen. So the last thing I'm going to say about my final impression, and you guys were mentioning recommendations, and I'll tie this up really quickly. You guys were talking about albums and stuff like that and videos, Chris, you mentioned. I want to go with, if I, if I was to recommend something, I would recommend, Ryan, you talked about this at the very opening. The 90-minute concert, Live Without a Net, from 86, from the 5150 tour. I would recommend watching this concert because you'll never see a more gifted and talented performer making the impossible look easy. And he looks like he's having the time of his life. And this is one thing we haven't really touched on enough. But Eddie Van Halen jumped around and smiled and laughed and kicked and looked like a kid in a candy store when he was playing live on stage. And... 
I forgot what it looked like to have fun being a musician, you know, playing music because our heroes, Ryan, you can you can attest to this. Like our musical heroes from the '90s made it fashionable to be miserable. That was like a that was like a thing, you know. It was like they looked like they hated every fucking second being on stage, and I got used to that. That became the norm for me for a long time. And then when I recently went and revisited this, it's like. Wow, it brings you back to like maybe it was and it wasn't just the 80s because not everybody else could pull this off. But Eddie Van Halen did. And you you assume it's about debauchery and recklessness and whatnot. But Eddie, you know, Eddie was the first to get married in the band. He actually had to get permission from the band members to marry Valerie Bertinelli because they were all against it. And he battled his demons and drugs and alcohol, which we talked about, and that ended his marriage and whatnot. But God, when you watch this concert, it brings... It almost brings a tear to my eye now because you watch somebody that's got this God-given talent that's doing things that I could only dream of doing on my best day. And he's never looking down at the guitar. He's looking off into the crowd and smiling and jumping and doing the splits in the air. And he looks like if we could all find that joy and that passion in whatever our career is, if for a moment in time we could capture that moment in a bottle, I would like we'd be a happier people. So Eddie Van Halen was a flawed human being and there was more to be had out of him. And it frustrates me and it pisses me off that we didn't get it, but watch that concert video and you'll see a guy that's just happy as fuck playing music. It's just pure, pure music. And I think, you know, that to me is, is a little classier than ripping the kids off doing some clown show. You know, it's just more, more down to earth now. And I think kids pick up on that. And I think the music's better, too. I don't think about the past at all. I mean, this is what we're doing now. And I mean, the past had its good moments, too. But this is like good moment every moment. <laughs> the future of Van Halen is just going to be, you know, I mean, we are in this for life. We're just going to continue on, you know, making the best possible music we can. And hopefully... The fans will like everything we do. Just blaze on. If I hit 80, if I make it that far, I'll still be doing the same thing. I might not be jumping. But I might be sitting on a stool, but I'll still be making music. My last note was going to be, if you, if you have a mental picture of Eddie Van Halen in your mind, he better be smiling because he had yeah. that goofy freaking grin on his yeah. face all the time. It's like, probably from the jump video. You know, when yeah. he, he, just looked, he just looked goofy as hell, smiling. Neil, you know what? You have built a Van Halen guitar before. Oh, <laughs> oh my I, God! We, you're... we can't. We can't. Not, I'm sorry. Okay. We'll, we'll try to make this quick. But... Oh my God! You're right. You're right. I built a uh, a completely free form, custom designed Frankenstat Lego guitar. I built one out of Legos, and it was, I had... it was the red with the black and white taped stripes and everything like that. It was yeah, it was the Kramer version because it had the curved banana headstock. I remember specifically being, and it had a removable whammy bar, mm-hmm. like it had a spinning whammy bar that I could play. Yeah. I, re- I boy, that was my pride and jewel. I kept that thing all throughout high school, like years after I stopped playing Legos, and you wrecked it. Okay, so 
you, I, I wrecked it, and then you you rebuilt it, and I took much better care of it because it was in it was in your room, which became my bedroom, un, well until I was in high school. It stayed really? on that shelf until probably the early two thousands. I think it was when we were moving some of that stuff into the basement after I went to college that it broke or got dropped or something like that, and then for, at that point it was gone. But it stuck around after you rebuilt it. So well, that makes me feel better. I'm happy about that. I have less animosity at you now what's that what's that word what's the opposite of shame uh pride no not that far from shame less shame yeah <laughs> and in the and in the fragile building and destruction of that lego car <laughs> there is a metaphor for the band that is van halen <laughs> wow you are absolutely right Thank you so much for being part of this discussion. Uh, we went actually. I, this, we went about as long as I thought we would. <laughs> so, so thank you, thank you for hanging with us on doing this, all of you. Uh, Chris Zagunis, Tom Panarese, Omar Yud, Neil Daly. Thank you very much for being part of this episode and talking about Van Halen with me. Listeners, Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening and rock on. This was fun. All, yeah. all you guys, that was, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm actually really happy that we did this with just aside from the normal format of just Ryan and I kind of going song by song over our favorites. This was really a, a much more fun discussion. And it, it wouldn't have happened this way if Omar hadn't emotionally blackmailed me to get on the episode. So, well, that's what, that's what I think about Omar. I think of emotional blackmail. Well, Tom, it was really good uh, to meet you in this virtual world. And uh, Chris, as always, is Chris and still here? I thought Chris. I thought Chris hung up a long time ago. No, no, I, I, I dozed off. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Neil. I, I told my wife about your Scotty Pippen story. Her, her response before I told him what you guys said on the show was yeah. he that he's she's like she looked at me. He's like he ruined Scotty Pippen's life. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs>
That's what these guys said. Oh yeah, exactly. So, so I just wanted to pass that on. Oh, you know, <sighs> you know what that reminds me? That reminds me, Neil, I forgot to tell my story when I met Eddie Van Hill. Oh, shit. I'm still recording. It's not Chris, a good you story. Want to tr- it's, it's, it's not a good story. Well, but, how about uh, this? Chris, if you want to do it in like a one-minute blurb, this Ryan, you could edit this in after Omar saying, am I the only person that saw them live? Uh, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll tell it, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, I mean, it's, it's so unmemorable that I – It is cool that you met him. I literally bro. forgot it. It is cool. And, and, and to be fair, I didn't actually meet him. I was just in his presence. But, yeah, <laughs> it, it, so it happened like this. It was when I first moved to California, and I had been here for a couple months. I was working at what was then a bookstore up at CityWalk. And this is back when CityWalk was relatively new. And so, like, it was kind of was a cool Upstart place to be. Was that Upstart Crow? Was that the yep. name of the bookstore? That was Upstart Crow. God, I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> and, and, and as a side note, it was, called, it was called Upstart Crow because that's a reference to Shakespeare. It is still there. It is now a souvenir shop with a name that is still a reference to Shakespeare. It's very bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, and this is at a point where, like, a lot of celebrities would come through there. The studios were right there. And not only, you know, was I in his presence, but I, it was my first celebrity encounter when I moved to L.A. So that was, you know, was kind of special in that respect. Working in the bookstore, I'm in the children's section. A woman comes up to me, asks me where the Christmas books are, because it's like about it's November at this point. I turn around. It's Valerie Bertinelli. And Whoa, while, okay. I'm, yeah, while I'm still trying to process that, I look over and standing right next to her is Eddie Van Halen. And the rest, I, I blacked out at that point. So I'm, I'm not sure what happened. So I'm going to give you two versions. Here's the likely version. I mumbled something stupid and then just kind of like staggered away, dumbfounded that I was just in the presence of Eddie Van Halen. The way I like to remember it is that I looked at Eddie Van Halen and said, holy fucking shit, you're Eddie Van Halen. And he goes, fucking A, right I am. He high fives me pulls out a guitar and just does a blazing ripping solo for like 20 minutes and the place goes nuts. And we've been best friends ever since. <laughs> you know, dude, that story would end better. If you said, then he turned, he turned on his jetpack and flew away. <laughs> that's just I, think it, I think it would have worked if you turned to Eddie and said, dude, that's Valerie Bertinelli. <laughs> my, my, my one takeaway from it though, my one takeaway from it was I remember that he seemed really tiny. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like just like a little tiny dude. Like yeah. I, I, his, his, I looked it up online. His height's supposed to be like five eight. I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> I, I, th- I think he was smaller than that. But he well, Michael like Anthony is five six. So Eddie, I don't know if Eddie's two inches taller than him. Yeah, and you know, he's just he was really slender, so he just seemed kind of elfin. But you know, he was just kind of sitting there with his hands in his pockets, and he didn't say a word. And I just kind of briefly looked at him. I, I couldn't, you know, it's like looking at the sun. I couldn't stare. You know, I couldn't look too long. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, then I, I, like I said, I think I just mumbled like, you know, like the books are over there and then just kind of <laughs> wandered away. But yeah, so that was it. The, the whole thing was about maybe 15 oh my seconds. God. But there you go. Very cool. Oh, Very cool. That's awesome. So I fully expect you not to use that because it's not particularly good. But <laughs> I, will, I the, will either edit it in or I will actually leave it as like a, a post music stinger at the, at the very end. Fair, fair enough. Nice. Fair enough. We, we just will we'll, I'll, I'll tack on something about infinity stones at the end of it. And that'll be <laughs> <laughs>